I'm Elizabeth. I uh, have been doing trainings with PMHB for a little over a year. Um, let's see what to say about myself. I'm a social worker. Um, we're going to talk about trauma-informed care today. My my first sort of clinical roles were actually in trauma treatment, um, and it really wasn't until I transitioned into working in uh, like more of a community mental health setting that I, I I suppose I was more exposed to trauma-informed care because we weren't just uh, treating trauma specifically. With um, I had worked with people who had been traumatically injured and with veterans, so. I, Trauma-informed care is a topic I love. I, I, I love how it fits into the other pieces of these training collaborative topic series that we are doing. Um, we started with recovery-oriented care. I think trauma-informed care is a wonderful extension of that. I'm very excited to talk with you all about it uh, over today and Friday. Great. Thanks, Elizabeth. And my name is David Hainick. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I've been with PMHP for almost a year. It's been it's actually about 11 months now, and I've been in uh, Los Angeles for that same period of time. So, uh, really excited to be here. And um, my career started off in, in mental health. I originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and immediately after grad school, uh, moved down to New Orleans, which just which happened to be. Um, in 2004, one year before Hurricane Katrina, so I kind of find, found myself working in, um, in the field of, of trauma, uh, not so much intentionally, and um, I certainly, it's, it's an amazing experience to, um, to have the experience and training and supervision that I've had in trauma. So uh, in New Orleans, I spent 11 years there, and uh, my supervisor was, uh, was definitely a local uh, uh, expert on, on trauma, and so I've learned a lot from her, and of course, just my experiences in providing direct care in the form of uh, clinical counseling to those who've experienced some sort of traumatic event, whether it was as a result of Hurricane Katrina or something that was uh, something else that has occurred to them in their lives. And uh, we'll probably talk a little bit about uh, about some of the similarities. I, I know a hurricane is very different than COVID-19, but one of the one of the things that is consistent is that we are all experiencing it together. So some of the people that were healthy may have um, some pretty strong stress reactions as a result of COVID-19, and that makes it challenging for us because we too are going through um, not the same experience, of course, but we're you know we have similar concerns and anxieties. So again, I, I found that to be a very similar. Um, uh, it, 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 looking back to my, my time in New Orleans, where you know we too were impacted as helpers and, and, and trying to assist those who are who are struggling. So, uh, anyways, I spent a few uh, spent a few years in New York City, did a lot of training, then worked with a very large uh, uh, mental health organization, and I oversaw all of their uh, all of the mental health and recovery services, such as assertive community treatment teams. Um, which, of course, is very similar to our SSP teams here in LA. And uh, now, finally, hopefully this is my last cross-country move. I hope to be in LA uh, for the long haul. So um, that's a little bit about me. Hope I didn't ramble too much there. All right. Um, so we're hoping from today's training, you'll be able to identify a few specific ways in which traumatic stress impacts chemistry in the brain and how those changes can create trauma responses. We hope you'll be able to differentiate the different types of stress responses and place them appropriately on a continuum. We hope you'll be able to link maladaptive behaviors to stress responses that may have been adaptive during trauma. Uh, name at least five resiliency factors and name at least five strategies for working with people who have histories of trauma. 
Um, well, we are going to start with a brief history of trauma. And I hope you find this interesting. I am personally not a fan of history. I think back to when I failed my History 103 course in college. I did take it again and I got an A. It didn't help that I failed it because I just didn't go to the final exam. That might have had something to do with it. But anyways, I find history of this part of history and how it relates to trauma particularly fascinating. And I'm gonna re uh, I'm gonna refer to a book quite frequently. Some of you may have heard of it. It's Trauma and Recovery. Let me hold it up there. And this is by Dr. Judith Herman. And uh, it's just such an important uh, such an important resource for understanding trauma and working with trauma. And um, and in her book, she starts with this brief history, and it's not a very happy history, of course, and, and it's filled with some really difficult um, concepts that we're going to talk about. So I apologize for starting off with some difficult stuff right off the bat, but, um, but again, I, I think it's incredibly relevant. And, and something else that I think is really important to mention is that um, you know, I am coming from a feminist perspective throughout through this uh, piece here, and um, I just think that's important to, to acknowledge and keep in mind, um, and I think you'll understand why as we start to go through some of this history. So early in the 1880s, um, you'll see on the screen, this is a photograph uh, from, I believe it's from Paris, France, and the artist was trying to uh, uh, trying to demonstrate, uh, trying to capture what hysteria looked like. Now, hysteria was what they originally, what some of the, um, uh, what some of the, uh, uh, how they were describing some of the symptoms of trauma. People didn't know exactly what it was, but they certainly targeted it towards women. And now Freud, who was really instrumental um, during this, uh, it, it, of course, as many of you know, uh, during this time frame, starting off with uh, doing research on, on this hysteria, trying to figure out what it was. And from that research, of course, was, was born out psychoanalytic theory. Now, we're not going to talk much about that today. But we are going to talk about maybe some of the things that we didn't necessarily know about Freud and some of his colleagues, some of the things that um, we don't always, always speak about. So as Freud was doing his research and as he was studying uh, women who demonstrated these really uh, seemingly bizarre symptoms that they called hysteria, um, he started to recognize that a lot of the women were reporting that they were uh, victims of trauma. Now it wasn't it wasn't shared in that context. They they might have reported how they have been uh, physically and sexually abused, whether as children or in their domestic in their relationships with their husbands. We know during those times that that there was the sense of ownership of women, and uh, and that men men basically controlled much of a, of a woman's life during this time, and so. As Freud was doing this research, again, it was coming up that, oh, wow, maybe some of this has to do something with the experiences that women have. And so as he was doing even more research and coming to these conclusions, he realized that there is absolutely a connection. And he actually did publish um, something early on. 
but we have to remember that the political and social climate during those times was not really conducive for pointing out that, hey, it looks like women are acting oddly because men are abusing them, that because men are doing horrible things to women. So he knew that wasn't gonna be very popular. He didn't wanna be ostracized himself. You could almost view him as a bystander. If you look at that, you know, if you look at a, uh, a traumatic event that's caused by a human, oftentimes there's the victim or survivor, there's the bystander, and of course there's the perpetrator. And while maybe Freud didn't perpetrate any of these crimes against women, uh, he was certainly witness to them as he was discovering this history and how it's now manifesting. And so with that, uh, it's so much easier for the bystander to, to deny, ignore, and try to brush these problems under the carpet. And unfortunately, that's exactly what Freud did. Now, I'm gonna read just a few things here um, that will hopefully demonstrate. So I apologize that I'm reading from a book, but I think this is really, uh, my words can't uh, share the, quite the same uh, impact that, that Dr. Judith Herman does in her book. So um, in one of the last cases that Freud was working with for a case of hysteria, he was working with a patient who was named Dora. And the, uh, it, um, going to read this. In this case, Freud still acknowledged that the reality of his patient's experience, this is the adolescent uh, Dora, she was being used as a pawn in her father's elaborate sex intrigues. Her father had essentially offered her to his friends as a sexual toy. However, Freud refused to acknowledge the emotions behind what that experience was. And in the end, what he was focusing on was instead of validating her outrage and humiliation, he insisted upon exploring her feelings of erotic excitement, as if the exploitative situation were a fulfillment, excuse me, of her desire. So needless to say, Dora broke off that relationship with her therapist of Freud, as he uh, completely minimized and discounted the horrible things that she had experienced as a child. And he also, later on, he, he basically recanted a lot of these discoveries that he had made. So he, I'm going to read another statement here. It says, Freud had concluded that his hysterical patient's accounts of childhood sexual abuse were untrue. I was at last obliged to recognize that these scenes of seduction had never taken place and that they were only fantasies which my patients had made up. And now we all know we have a much better insight, much better research and acknowledgement of the experiences that uh, uh, victims and survivors of trauma have. But just think of how horrible that would be back in the 1800s. And of course, this continues on into the early 1900s of, uh, of women having that experience. And so that's why I think it's really important to A, recognize that this is part of the history of research of trauma. And, um, and that's also why I, I like to view this from a, a feminist perspective, because I think it is, again, just a very important point. So as you can imagine, there really wasn't much more research. They kind of dropped it. They, they stopped looking into, was this hysteria? Was it, was it part of trauma? Or was it, just, was it just women acting inappropriately? And that's really how they had couched it, and that's where they left it. So 
Um, and, and just, I'm going to go back to this picture really quick. And I, I think this picture is a really great example of how women were viewed. Here in this piece of art, or, or this, uh, maybe not art, I, I don't know if I would call it that, but they weren't focusing on this woman's experiences. They were looking at how, how bizarre some of her actions were without the curiosity of what was behind them. And turning a woman's experience, turning her suffering into something that um, can be put on display. And uh, so that, that picture, you know, speaks, is pretty powerful uh, for me. And so then the next kind of phase where trauma came into society's perspectives and views is first during the First World War and World War II, but during World War I, um, we started to notice that men were having experiences or demonstrating symptoms that were really similar to what hysteria looked like. And it was called the shell shock. And the reason for this, I believe it was in World War I where shell shock became kind of coined as that term, was because they, the men didn't want to acknowledge that the symptoms they were demonstrating, which again, very similar to what hysteria was like for women, that they didn't want to acknowledge that these symptoms were actually part of a mental health condition. And so they, uh, they, they associated those essentially PTSD symptoms to what happens when you're too close to a bomb exploding. So the concussive um, noise that a shell makes when it explodes, and uh, I'm sure there might be better terms for that. I am so not a war person, <laughs> but that that impact creates some sort of almost a concussion for the men um, who were fighting these wars. And that was the reason that they explained for why men were sometimes mute. They refused to talk. They were acting in ways that were not consistent with how a man was expected to act during those times. But certainly we couldn't associate that with being some sort of mental health issue. And you can imagine there's stigma today around mental health. And certainly uh, during these times, there is even more um, even more uh, stigma. And uh, thank you, Kristen. Uh, yeah, traumatic brain injuries known as today. Yeah, and I think that's a great example of how we know more. And before we would just say it was, well, because of this loud explosion that's making you, making you act odd. But no, it could have, it was most likely PTSD and or traumatic brain injury. Um, again, we, we didn't fully understand. And so then during the, the Vietnam War, which um, clearly was a, well, actually, let me take a step back, I'm sorry. Uh, going back to uh, World War I, um, what they were doing, there was a researcher, a psychiatrist in, in Britain who was advocating that treatment for this shell shock um, should, have been, should be electrocution. Not, not electroconvulsive therapy as we know today, but simply providing electric shocks to these individuals in a way that was harmful. And those were some of the ways that this was treated. But again, no acknowledgement that this might have been, there might have been some emotional components to this. Or again, it could have been traumatic brain injury. So then we moved to the Vietnam War, which was an incredibly traumatic experience for the individuals who had to go there and fight. And the trauma on this is, you know, it, 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 so many different, uh, so many different ways. Of course, being in a war which 
you know, there is a really strong possibility that you could be injured or be or, or be killed. Um, knowing that the United States, oh, a lot of people were protesting it. So you, some men were forced to go. They were drafted. They had to go. They didn't feel like they had the support of those people back in the United States. And in fact, people here were protesting. Not that they were protesting the men. I mean, they were protesting the men going, but it wasn't like it was their choices to go to war. They were being drafted, of course, but knowing that they didn't have that support, that they were part of this problem. And then uh, sometimes they, they had to kill people. Sometimes that killing wasn't justified. Um, sometimes it may have been part of war and it was justified in, in a sense. Um, but regardless, the trauma that those individuals experienced when they were in Vietnam is insurmountable. It's almost it's so difficult for me to even comprehend and you know knowing my own experience my dad fought in the Vietnam War it was something that he rarely ever talked about um, I know very little of his experiences of, of Vietnam you know he's, he's uh, he has passed uh, passed away since not from the war um, but yeah I, I sometimes think now that I'm learning even more about trauma like what some of those experiences were like for him but the thing with the Vietnam War was that because there were so many men coming back, this really started, they were coming back with symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder or combat stress reactions. And that really prompted researchers to say, oh my gosh, we have to work into this. So in a way, it's wonderful that finally something triggered this response from the scientific and mental health community. The sad part is that it took, it took men becoming the ones who were who were the victims, where finally the science world and the political and social world decided to take it seriously. So talk about injustices, um, but I, again, I think that's a really important point to, to mention. And then really the third one, which kind of coincided, the third event and political movement that really accelerated um, research and knowledge into uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is the uh, women's liberation movement in the 1970s. So again, it coincided with the Vietnam War ending and women were taking a stand. People of color were taking a stand. They were sick of being treated as if they were less than men in society. Um, African-American women were sick of being treated as if they were less than any other human in society. So uh, and women were sick of being um, sexually assaulted and having no discussion of that, not being able to talk about it without being called a liar, without being called a manipulator, um, without being told that you're someone who's making stories. So these events, you know, starting back to this concept of hysteria with Freud and his research and then his recanting of that research, and then the, the wars where it started to show that, wow, this isn't really just something that women deal with. We're starting to see men suffer from this. And then the women's liberation movement where finally um, uh, conditions were such that some very, very brave women and very brave people of color decided to step out and say, we had enough of this. Um, the, these three things really sparked and have laid the foundation to where our research is now. And thank God we are in a much better place. We are still not perfect, 
we know, if we, we look at this again from a, a feminist perspective, we know that women today still come out and, and report about their sexual assaults that they've experienced. And we see very openly how they are often shut down. So there's still a long way to go um, on that front. But there is now lots and lots of research out there that demonstrates that PTSD is a real thing that trauma truly does impact how we how we think and how we feel and how we behave and that's part of survival and sometimes those behaviors may look a little odd or they may not be in the right context but it, it's not something that we can simply sweep under the rug anymore it's, it's such a serious um such a serious issue that we have to continue working towards so i do want to uh quickly read a poem and, and this poem is from the uh, actually, I have the. I want to make sure I give credit to the uh, to who wrote this poem. Um, I don't know her first name, but it's Jay Pepperman, and she titled this poem "Going Through Changes." This was written during the women's liberation movement, and um, it was in a collection of poems that women had written. So, uh, so today in my small natural body, I sit and learn. My woman's body, like yours, target on any street, taken from me at age of 12. I watch a woman dare. I dare to watch a woman. We dare to raise our voices. So um, again, I just think that's a beautiful poem. I'm, I'm sorry that I, I'm reading it. I realize that it might be kind of odd as a man reading this poem that says as a woman. So, um, but anyways, I think the history around trauma is rich and so important to where we are today. And um, again, coming from this feminist perspective, it's certainly not to discount the experiences of men as many men have also experienced some of the same atrocities that women have experienced. And the things that occur during war are just incomprehensible. Um, I can't even imagine uh, how that would impact someone's life. So I'm not seeing anything come up. So I am going to jump into the next section here, and we're going to talk about the stress response and fear and stress and how those things are related. Um, I don't know if anyone else has, uh, you might have heard me present on these topics before, so I apologize if it's, uh, if it's duplicative for you, but hopefully it'll just kind of reinforce some of this. So we want to really start at start at the beginning before we start talking about trauma. We want to talk about what are some of the emotions that that are at the core of this. Now, I think many people have heard of this fight or flight response. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, um, but that's really kind of the core. And underneath, but we're, let's dissect that uh, flight or fight response even further. Underneath that response, there is this very innate, very uh, uh, evo uh, evolutionary emotion that has kept us alive for millions of years, and that's fear. Without fear, we probably wouldn't be here today. Um, it supports our survival, as annoying as it could sometimes be. If it wasn't for that, we'd probably be in lots of dangerous situations, and sometimes we wouldn't make it out of those dangerous situations successfully. So. To do a quick definition, I, I love my definitions, of course. Uh, this is from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Fear, an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. 
And you've probably heard this uh, example before, but as I have on the screen, I have a cave woman and I have a cute little saber-toothed tiger. And if it wasn't for fear, our cave, uh, cave people ancestors may have said, wow, that's a really cute cat. I would love to cuddle with this cat and what a great little pal I'll have in my cave with me. And uh, we know, well, I think we know, I'm sure there's evidence to support that saber-toothed tigers would most likely, if you go to pet it or cuddle it, it would probably just eat you. Um, and that happened one or two times, probably a lot more than that. But our cave-dwelling ancestors recognized that, okay, this cat is dangerous, along with many other animals during that time. So they were able to learn that. And so the next time, so here we have our, our cave woman, she knows that now, she knows from experience, she knows through storytelling, that that is a dangerous animal. So here she sees this cat. And instead of saying, I'd really like to be friends with this cute saber-toothed tiger, she's going to experience fear. And that fear is going to motivate her to get the hell out of the way of this cat or to hide, or to run, whatever she needs to do, or maybe even hunt it and kill it. However, that fear is going to motivate all of her actions, or most of her actions, as it relates to this very serious threat. Um, so I think I've covered the points on, on this slide, so let's go down to this next one here and, and talk a little bit about what this process looks like. So, our senses provide information on a possible threat. So we have a part of our brain, it's tiny, tiny, and it's called the amygdala. And this is kind of the first level. And what this piece of our brain does is that it interprets lots of different information that we're receiving, but primarily it's getting this information from our perception. So from our sense of sight and smell and touch, taste, and I'm sure I'm forgetting one sound. I, I don't know if I said that one or not, um, but it's interpreting that data as it's coming in. And it's also kind of checking, cross-referencing with knowledge that we have in our brains. And it's doing this in a moment's notice, in like a very fast instant. And so it's trying to say, okay, is this dangerous or not? And if it's something that is dangerous, if it's saying, okay, I see a saber-toothed tiger, I know my knowledge, my, my sight is giving me this, okay, I see this scary cat. Maybe they'll able, maybe someone's able to smell that cat as well. And they're able to cross-reference that in a moment's notice, like, okay, I know this is dangerous. I know this is a predator that may, um, that may kill me. And so the amygdala is kind of responsible for that process. And it sends an alert. That alert goes to another part of the brain, um, which we'll, we'll talk about really quickly but that alert allows the brain to go on uh, kind of in this warning mode and things start to get activated. And we'll talk about what that activation looks like momentarily. So, but what I'd like for you to remember during this, uh, on this slide is that the amygdala sends this alert based on information and perceptions available. It does it almost instantly. So sometimes there might be a false alarm. Our brains aren't perfect. Sometimes our brains may say, I'd rather be safe than sorry, and here's an alarm, and you figure it out from there. Um, but, uh, but again, it's all with the intent of keeping us safe. And so now, why don't we talk about what happens after that messages, message is forwarded. So the hypothalamus, that's uh, a, another part of the brain, and it, it controls, you can view it as like kind of a control command center, 
And it's not necessarily, it's not the autonomic nervous system, but it controls, it helps, it activates that nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is really, really complex. I have tried so hard to understand it. My partner is a primary care physician and he's tried to explain some of the things to me and it go, it's, so, it's so hard to wrap my head around how complex these systems are. Um, but it, it does have two systems. And the first one is the sympathetic system and then there's the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is the one that gets activated when the amygdala sounds that alarm. And so the hypothalamus, it says, okay, I got the alarm. Thank you very much, amygdala. I appreciate the information. And then the hypothalamus goes, okay, sympathetic nervous system, you have some job, you have some work to do. So start out activating all those different parts of the body so they can be prepared to either run away, to hide, to flee, to fight back, whatever it is. So that sympathetic nervous system kicks into action. And one of the most important things that it does is that it triggers our adrenal glands. Our adrenal glands, not that this is important, but maybe it's a fun fact. Um, they're located, there's two of them, they're located right on top of each kidney. And those glands, they secrete adrenaline, also known as epinephrine. And they also secrete something called noradrenaline, or you could call it norepinephrine. Um, we're really just going to focus on adrenaline um, uh, today, but that chemical gets released into our bloodstream. And that chemical in the blood starts a whole chain reaction of, of, uh, of responses in our body. So let's just take a, a moment to, to focus on adrenaline. So as I said, it primes the body and mind to respond to a perceived threat. One of the things that I don't have listed here, but I think is really important that when a perceived threat uh, occurs and this alarm system is activated, adrenaline, along with another chemical that we're gonna talk about momentarily, they work together to, to, to make all of these reactions. And one of those reactions is they actually kind of, they kind of stifle our executive function. Our executive function is our ability to make decisions, critically think, um, be able to control our emotions, emotionally regulate, um, really important stuff. I imagine everyone right now is using their executive function. And, um, but when we're in this moment of high stress or, uh, or, or fear, those functions don't work as well. They get stifled by adrenaline, by cortisol. So that's one of the first things that's, uh, that's important to note. And it's not like they stifle them for the reason of just stifling them. They want us to save our energy and our brain power to be able to respond to the threat. And so another thing that happens is that the adrenaline, it, it, it helps the lungs absorb more oxygen. So there are really small airways that aren't always in use in our lungs, but when there is an emergency, such as whatever that emergency is, those small airways get opened up and more oxygen is able to be absorbed from the air. And the uh, adrenaline causes an increased heart rate, and that's to enable blood to get to all parts of the body a little bit more quickly. Uh, you'll notice blood pressure and pulse increase, so those things are working a, a little bit harder, again, to get that blood to all parts of the body, because we need to get oxygen, we need to get food to those muscles and to our internal organs so we can respond. Extra oxygen is sent to the brain, so that's to attune our senses, not to attune our executive functioning, 
but it's to make sure that we're a little bit hyper aware. So if you're in this fear mode, you may notice things, um, you may notice small movements and they might uh, not set you off, but they may uh, trigger a response from you. Maybe um, you might be startled. And that's because our, our senses are, are more attuned because um, we want to prepare for whatever danger there is. And our blood sugar or our glucose and fat, um, they're released from temporary storage sites and that energy gets into the blood and then it gets distributed to those organs and also to our muscles, again, for the purposes of being able to respond a little bit faster. Now's the time to kind of talk a little bit more in depth to the fight or flight response. Some of you may have heard um, that there's actually like this third component. You could, you could run, you could fight, or you could freeze. And I personally don't like to view those three things together because normally what happens, uh, freeze comes a little bit later. And so here we have, I'm in danger. And I, I use a really bad example, but I'm gonna use this example anyways for the lack of um, my creative uh, abilities right now are a little bit stifled because I'm experiencing stress and anxiety. So some of my executive function is a little bit damp. Um, anyways, so let's say I am walking down the street and I see a man running towards me. I feel as if I'm in danger. So my brain's gonna go through this process. It might go through this process without me really knowing about it, or I might have some cognizant awareness of this, it depends, but I'm gonna think, can I, can I run? Um, and so I'm gonna make this really quick assessment. Okay, man's running towards me. He's running really fast. And while I like to run, I'm probably not gonna be able to outrun him. And if I do try to outrun him and he catches me, I imagine he's gonna be even more pissed off than before and cause me even more bodily harm, if that's what I think is about to happen. So I might say, nope, I am not going to do that. Um, and then I think, well, can I, can I fight? Well, I don't know if you've seen me in person, but I don't have very many big muscles, so I will probably not succeed very well in fighting. And so that's a really quick no, that's a quick hard no, like no, not gonna do it. <laughs> so when both of those options are no, the safest thing for me to do in that moment might be to freeze. Freezing, I can at least maybe protect myself. I can curl into a little ball to maybe protect my, my front side where I'm a little bit more vulnerable. Um, or freezing might have the added benefit of um, not, uh, not further angering the individual who's trying to assault me for whatever reason that may be. Uh, so that assessment is freezing seems to be the right thing to do in that moment. And then, of course, if fleeing is the right thing, then yes, of course, flee. And if fighting is the right thing, then fight. Um, oftentimes, this freeze um, component can be really tough for survivors of trauma to, to, to accept. And, uh, and we'll explore that a little bit later. But I, to give you just a really quick example, you know, I think about um, someone that I work with who has experienced uh, sexual uh, sexual assault, rape as a as a child from a parent, and 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 she definitely froze in those moments. And there was a lot of blame of like I didn't do anything, so I was basically asking for it. Um, and we had to really walk through this process of you're a child that's a trusted adult. Could you run from your parent? Probably not. Um, and if anything, and because of the history that this individual has, she knows that fleeing would not result in anything good. 
Same with fighting. Can a child fight a, a grown man? Typically not, and typically that's going to result in even more bodily harm. So the only option was to freeze and then to dissociate, which we'll talk a bit uh, tomorrow. Friday, we'll, we'll address that dissociation piece. But, but yeah, for, for the individual that I'm referring to, that freezing was, was misinterpreted as, no, I allowed this to happen. And that is absolutely not the case. So, um, so anyways, I'm going to move on from that. Uh, but if there are any questions about this process, feel free to type those in. I, I think the fight or flight response is, is pretty well known and, and makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of research to support that. So, um, beyond adrenaline, after the threat has passed, so let's say I had that experience of someone comes running after me, it turns out it was just a jogger and they had no intent in harming me. I was just being a little hypervigilant there. So the threat has passed and now my body needs to calm down. So another process, well, actually I'm going in the wrong direction as I look at my slide. That's what happens when I don't read my slides as carefully. So let's put that on hold. We'll talk about that process later. Um, so let's say that, you know, the immediate threat has passed. Maybe this individual who is chasing me is, you know, I don't know, maybe he's still around and, I, you know, he hasn't assaulted me, but I'm still really fearful. So like that immediate alert has uh, uh, had occurred in my body, but now my body still wants to be on alert because my body doesn't know what's happening. So my brain's going to uh, introduce even more and additional hormones. And the one that we're going to focus on is, is cortisol. And what I have on the slide here is really confusing. And so you don't need to um, necessarily read or remember this because it's a really complex process. It's like the hypothalamus re uh, releases one chemical. It goes to the pituitary gland, which releases another chemical. The end result is is that cortisol gets released into the blood. And when, the, when cortisol gets released into the blood, it has some of the similar effects of adrenaline, but it works in very different ways. It's, it's a hormone, it keeps our body alert. We have cortisol in our blood pretty much all the time, but depending on what level. Um, if, if you're really stressed out, most likely your cortisol levels are gonna be a lot higher. And uh, one of the things, I, I alluded to this earlier, but Cortisol, uh, one of the uh, impacts that it has, and this was really helpful, but also creates some of these uh, traumatic memories that I believe Elizabeth is going to talk about later this afternoon, is that it create it makes our brain create these snapshots of what's going on, and those snapshots are super important because they keep us safe in the future. So if I see a man running at me, cortisol is kicking in. It's taking all of these snapshots. And it's putting those away in storage. So that way, if I'm in this situation again, I'm going to remember like, oh, I, I remember this happened before. This is dangerous. I have to get out of here. And so again, it's, it's a really helpful thing. However, because they are snapshots, sometimes it doesn't capture everything that's, that's in, the, in that perception. Um, maybe it's going to capture that there is a, a man running and that it is a sunny day and that there's loud music playing and those things get bundled together. And that's kind of an odd memory. The music doesn't really have anything to do with it. The sunny day doesn't have anything to do with it. But for whatever reason, those get bundled in with that memory. And so we're going to review this later um, because we're going to talk about how these things serve, can serve as triggers. Okay. And 
cortisol, uh, it does have harmful effects when it's in our body for, uh, for a certain period of time and when it's at elevated amounts. And I think the one that I think that a lot of times people really resonate with is how cortisol, it contributes to us carrying additional fat around our abdomen. And the reason for that is it wants to make sure that we have enough food for our stress response. And it wants to store the food in a centrally located spot. And uh, well, there you have it. It goes into our tummies. And sometimes we, you know, someone can be in really good physical shape and they exercise every day, their diet is really good. And you're like, why can't I get rid of this belly fat? It might be interesting to look at how much stress that individual is experiencing and what role cortisol is having in that. So not only can uh, re reducing your stress, obviously it feels better to not have stress, but it could also, it, it does also have a lot of really important impacts on our physical health and of course our mental health. So um, that's the one thing I wanted to mention about cortisol. Other than that, it definitely causes an increase in blood pressure. And we know that uh, an increase in blood pressure over a period, period of time, it, makes our hearts tired. And we know if your, if your heart is always overworking, if it's always overworking, um, that could set us up for some, uh, for some health conditions down the road. And same with blood pressure, you know, it's our cortisol increases our blood pressure. If we always have a lot of cortisol, if our blood pressure is always a little bit elevated, um, that has impact on our kidneys. It has an impact on our brain. It has an impact on, uh, this is kind of an odd one, but even our eyes because there's a lot of really tiny blood vessels in there. And our blood vessels were not made to, uh, to constantly get this huge pressure of, of blood there. I mean, it's okay occasionally, um, but if it's constant, that's gonna start to deteriorate those organs. Um, and so that's, again, just, just a really important thing to, uh, to, to keep in mind when we talk about stress and cortisol. And, and, we'll, and I know I'm interchanging stress with fear. And so I'll, when we get into the stress section, I'm going to talk a little bit more and hopefully bridge that gap. Um, so I do see a question here, and I, I want to address that. So Tony, thank you for writing this. It says, so how does the relevant... Uh, Sorry. How does that relate or integrate into current social belief systems, such as when a white woman feels threatened when she sees a black man immediately, locks her car doors, etc., and she hasn't even been attacked by a black man in her life? Where does our teachings by parents, media, etc., have a part to play in our brain? The C spread, I understand. I just want to know when occasions like this happen, does it have to be something with our brain function? So, oh my gosh, it is such a good point, Tony. So yes, I, I'm so glad you said that. Um, so let's take my example and let's say that, you know, this man running at me, he's a black man. And um, I've never been attacked by a black man before, but I've certainly seen a lot of that on the news. Um, let's say that I have a lot of racism in me. Um, I, I hope I don't. I, I know you may have heard me talk before about implicit bias and stigma and Elizabeth and I have mentioned those things before, but they have an impact on what we perceive to be a threat. So if my upbringing, if I was raised uh, in a household that used racist language, that presented black men as dangerous, I watch the news and I see that, um, you know, there's a much more focus on when a black man commits a crime than when a white man does. When I look at our prison systems and I see that 
they are filled with black men as compared to uh, white or brown men. Um, well, actually, brown men are also uh, uh, disproportionately uh, present in our uh, prison system. Not that that's the intent of this conversation, but if I didn't have the insight, um, absolutely. I would view that individual as a threat to me, and that would start my stress response. And so I, I hope that uh, I hope that answers your question, Tony. So yeah, while I may have never had that experience, I can still feel very threatened by something that really is not dangerous at all. And it's not that my brain is messed up. It's not like it's doing something wrong. That's how it's wired. But it's my responsibility to say, okay, I now know that I have these implicit biases or explicit biases. And I need to check those. I need to do something about it. Because if I find that I feel threatened when I see a black man, like that's not okay. Um, so I'm going to need to do something so I can minimize that stress response when I see somebody um, who fits that profile. Because that is, uh, for many reasons, obviously, that is an inappropriate response. And that causes the alienation and further perpetuates racism and stigma in our society. So. Hopefully I answered that, Tony. It's an excellent, excellent question. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, so after the threat, uh, yeah, that takes a certain amount of awareness. You are so right, Tony. And I, I, I certainly have, you know, I certainly have a ways to go with my own awareness and recognizing privilege. Um, but I, I, I feel when you, yeah, I, there are so many examples of, uh, of how we see a lack of awareness within our society. And I'll stop there because I could probably go on a, uh, on a very long tangent there. Um, so after the threat, let's say that, um, you know, I, this is where I was going before that I saw this man running at me, my threat response kicked in, and then I realized it was just a jogger, I'm in no danger. My body's like, oh, never mind, you're okay. So then that's where my parasympathetic system it kicks in and it starts to cool the body down. And this system is super complex. And this is one of those things I have a really hard time wrapping my head around. And I would need to be a uh, neuropsychologist or something like that to really understand. Um, but what's important here is that there is a parasympathetic nervous system that puts the brakes on that stress response. It takes some time though. It's not as fast as the immediate alert system, which happens in a split second. This one takes, it could take 60 minutes, 90 minutes. It, it, it all depends. Um, okay, so that is the um, sort of uh, stress response in a, in a very small nutshell. I hope that was helpful. Um, Kristen, I appreciate your comment. Social learning comes into play with our own family dynamics. Yeah, I mean, social learning, of course, contributes to um, our perceptions and our implicit biases, as well as our explicit biases. Um, so thank you for bringing that up, and that's a very important point. Um, so let's talk about, uh, kind of uh, move into the area of stress. I know I've been talking about fear, and I sometimes use fear and stress a bit interchangeably. So, um, uh, so I'm going to give a little background on that. So if we look at stress, you could, you could view stress as kind of a, uh, the underlying fear within stress is, is ultimately fear. 
So when I think about things that I'm stressed about, I could I think about right now I'm feeling stressed because I'm presenting to uh, to a lot of people online, and ultimately what's underneath that stress is fear. Like what if I make a mistake? What if I misspeak? What if I offend somebody? Um, uh, what if I'm not doing a good job and my boss catches word that I'm a really bad presenter or something like that? Like those are fears that are underlying that that anxiety that I'm feeling. So, um, so that's how I like to make sense of stress, at least in like, what's that underlying emotion that's there? Because stress is not necessarily an emotion. Stress is really a combination of reactions to how we deal with these emotions, uh, primarily fear. And, you know, we had talked about this previously, and that the role of fear is super important. It keeps us safe. And that fear motivates us. So we don't need to talk about the saber-toothed tiger because we don't see those anymore. And you know we need to kind of bring this back to a level that makes sense to everybody um, or relatable, not that it doesn't make sense. But let's look at the role of stress. So if you don't have any stress in your life, most likely you're not going to have a whole lot of motivation. You know, I remember when this whole work from home thing started and it started incredibly suddenly. Um, I, I, I certainly wasn't prepared to leave the office that day and not come back for, I don't know how long it's been, six years. That's what it feels like. Um, but like, I wasn't prepared. And, you know, I think all of us are like, what, what, what do we do? <laughs> and for a moment there, there were a few days where like, I, I don't know what, like what we're going to work on because all of my projects were based upon providing in-person trainings. And Zoom was a, a somewhat of a foreign concept to me at that point. <laughs> so there were a few days there were, not that I didn't have any stress. I was stressed about COVID and all the things that were happening, but about work and about what I needed to do, I don't think I was very productive because there just wasn't a whole lot of motivation for me. Um, I didn't have any pressing projects. Everything got kind of put on hold. And so, you know, I certainly would, you know, sit at my home office and be like, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do today. Um, but then, of course, that changed. And we started to reorient ourselves to working from home. We shifted our focus. We now are providing online trainings, obviously. So, yeah, so now I experience some stress. And I have projects. And I have deadlines. And we have expectations. And so that stress is really important. I want to meet those expectations. So it's, it's helpful for me. I feel a bit more productive. Um, I don't know if anyone else is like this, but if you don't give me a deadline and there's really no indication of when you want something done, well, I'm in no hurry to get it done. I will take my time or I might not do anything with it at all until someone says, hey, what about this project? Like, oh, did you want me to do something? Because I, I didn't do anything. Um, I need that stress to motivate me. And, you know, I, I didn't include this on the slide, but I stress is really, stress is produced when there are changes in our environment or when there are demands placed upon us. So those two things, whether there's change or demands, those things are gonna produce that stress and that's gonna motivate us. Now, we get to this point where you, uh, you have enough stress that you're performing optimally. You're not overly stressed. You're not. Uh, you're not worried. You're not feeling paralyzed. You're not feeling um, fearful. But you. You have. You have pressure. You have demands placed upon you, 
And depending on who you are and how you operate and your own personal history, that, that might be an optimal point for you. And so on the screen, you have this like kind of uphill and then it starts to go downhill. Everyone's optimal performance section there is going to be different. And, um, uh, and that's okay because we are all different. We all have different reasons for why uh, we feel stressed during certain times. And, and we'll talk more about that. Now, let's say I'm at my optimal performance now. If you keep adding stress onto me, I'm going to decrease in productivity. I'm not going to be able to really think straight. I'm going to have probably too much adrenaline, too much cortisol flowing through my blood, and my executive function might start to not completely shut down, but it's going to be stifled. It's not going to work as, as good as it normally would work. Um, and, and it's not that I'm just going to be not as productive at work, I'm also not gonna be that productive at home. I'm not always able to contain my areas of stress in neat little boxes. Some people are able to do that. Uh, for me, it's like if I'm stressed, I'm stressed everywhere. If I'm feeling calm, I'm feeling calm everywhere. So I'm curious to what other people think if they're able to kind of contain those things like home stress versus work stress. Um, you're more than welcome to type some of those things in if you like. And then finally, if you keep adding more and more stress, then I most likely I'm just going to feel paralyzed. And I, I think Elizabeth can empathize with this. We did a training back in January, it was an in-person training. And, you know, from my perception, and I think from Elizabeth's perception, like things went wrong during that training. And technology didn't work. We were running out of time. We had more participation in ways that we weren't necessarily expecting. And after we were done with our section that morning, we did all this training, I was so stressed out that I just sat in the chair and I could not listen to the remaining of the presentation. Our One of our colleagues, uh, Lisa, was presenting and I felt terrible because I, I couldn't listen. I could not absorb what she was saying. I was, uh, I was, I was basically paralyzed. Um, I mean, not truly paralyzed, but it was clearly way too much stress in that moment and I was not able to function. If you put me, you know, if you asked me to do anything complex during that moment, um, aside from sitting in the chair and be quiet, I would most likely fail at that task. I was in the back of the room eating cake. <laughs> so that was my stress response. <laughs> I think I eventually did go to the cake, but I was even too paralyzed to get to that point. <laughs> I mean, I'm always able to go to cake eventually. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk about different different stress levels and. Uh, so I have these little beakers or test tubes here, and the each event for every person is going to be a little bit different. You know, for some people, if you were presenting, actually, you know what, what Elizabeth shared might be a really great example. I might have experienced more stress in that moment, even though we both experienced the same thing. We both had these similar thoughts of, oh my gosh, that just did not go good. I shut down. Elizabeth was still able to come and eat some cakes. She didn't completely shut down. She was able to maybe use a coping mechanism. And I don't know, Elizabeth, if that is a coping mechanism. That, that sounds about right. Yeah, I was okay. having caffeine and cake, and I was still able to um, somewhat engage and listen. Yeah, oh, I was yeah. probably like maybe one, two, three, four, five, four, you know, in the middle there somewhere. Yeah, and I, it sounds, I, I think I was probably just a, a step above where I just kind of shut down. And 
what's really interesting is we both had, again, we both had the same experience and why we both um, dealt with it differently. Well, we'll, we'll talk about momentarily. Um, but, but each event is going to have a certain level of stress to it. You know what? The days when we used to drive to work, I, I think some of you are still driving to work. I just see some people in their offices with masks on. Um, some people find their morning commute very calming and relaxing. Other people find their morning commute really stressful. And why is it that the same or two different people find the same experience um, completely different? Well, it's because of what we'll talk about on the next slide. But think about some of the events that you've experienced and how would you how would you rate them? And I don't go into this in this training, but stress is cumulative also. So you have, let's say you have a stressful morning commute in. It's not that that test tube, let's say it's right in the middle and your stress is kind of, yeah, it's pretty high. Um, it's not like it just goes away because you're out of the car and in your office. Like it might go down a bit, but there's still some stress there. And you go into the office and you, you know, you open your email and you have, you know, 500 messages. So it's not like you start a new test tube with a new level of stress. Nope, it just gets all added in there. And, um, and then let's say you get in an argument with a colleague and then more stress. So it, um, so it just kind of adds up. So being cognizant of your stress levels is really important and how they accumulate and build up is also a really important concept. So I think everyone has a good understanding of, of that. So let's talk about some of the variances in, uh, uh, in, in events and stress. So the example I'd use with Elizabeth and I, or an example of driving to work and how people experience things very differently, like why is that? Why do people have the same experience as similar and the reactions are very dramatically? Well, the, the very first thing is genetic. Like there's actually a genetic component to how we deal with stress. Um, I'm going to skip over historical trauma, so I'm going to talk about that um, after I get through this list, and then we're going to watch a, a really quick video. Um, but our support systems. So let's just say I'm just I'm, um, just being hypothetical here. Um, let's say maybe Elizabeth in that moment, she knows that she has a really supportive network of friends and family members that, you know, even though that training that didn't go that well, uh, is really stressful to her. She might be thinking while she's enjoying cake, like, you know what, it's okay. I'm going to go home. I'm going to debrief. And I know my family's going to be there for me. And maybe I'm thinking, oh, I have nobody to talk about this with. I know when I'm feeling these sort of experiences, um, they just stay with me because I, I don't share them with anyone. I don't have that support. So maybe we don't actively have that conversation with ourselves in our head. But that information is still there. And so that could be one of those reasons why I'm going to experience stress a little bit, a little bit differently, because maybe I don't have the support systems that I need. Now, if we've previously had experiences uh, that were stressful, or maybe we've even experienced trauma uh, previously, that's going to impact how we deal with present situations and stressful situations. Um, there might be some triggers in there that cause us to, to react in a certain way. Um, there, there may be similarities. I, I know I had mentioned that kind of the similarities between Hurricane Katrina and COVID-19. While they're very different, I certainly think a lot about my experiences during that time as COVID has been, um, ha as 
the world is adapting to COVID and things changing. And so um, that might, that could possibly make me a little bit more stressed out than somebody else as, as it relates to COVID-19. So um, again, just examples, um, mental health, uh, depending if somebody maybe already has a, an anxiety disorder or, or somebody has major depressive disorder, or maybe even an adjustment disorder, um, whether it's present or in the past, having some sort of mental health um, challenge can make, um, can change the perception of our experiences. Coping mechanisms, perhaps, uh, you know, if I'm feeling more stressed, it might also be because maybe I don't have any coping mechanisms that are healthy and adaptive to the situation. Maybe I don't know how to do deep breathing. I don't know how to journal. I don't know how to, I don't have that insight that we kind of had talked about before. Um, whatever that is, if, depending on our coping mechanisms, we may experience stress differently. And then of course, the availability of resources. And some of those resources might be social support, like we had already talked about. Some of those resources might be financial uh, in, in nature. And, and so, you know, experiencing COVID uh, can certainly bring up those differences where somebody who doesn't have financial resources, the threat of losing their job or being furloughed or laid off, it's going to be way more stressful, most likely, than somebody who has lots of financial resources. And if they lost their job, ah, no big deal. I have a year's worth of savings that I could live off of, and I'll be fine. And um, that's, that's going to make a big difference. Um, it's not that wealthy people don't experience stress and that poor people experience more. Um, well, it's probably true that lower income um, probably does experience more stress. I don't have research to verify that though, so don't quote me. But um, resources do certainly play a part in how we perceive events that are happening to us. Um, so before I go to the next slide, I'm curious if anyone has any, um, uh, any questions or comments that they would like to add into the chat box at this point. Um, I did notice that Kristen had added in um, social learning. We talked about the social learning coming into play with our family dynamics, but also with the public sector. And um, I, I'm not sure if you're referring to kind of the institutional racism and, uh, and bias that exists. And I, if that's what you're referring to, absolutely, um, that is, definitely there and contributes to how we navigate our world, how we experience stress and trauma and fear. So I'm going to move into this really quick and then we're going to revisit this, uh, the uh, historical trauma too, so don't think I forgot about that. Um, so variances in perceptions of events. So very quick example, let's say two people get into a car accident, both of their vehicles are um, damaged in maybe a, a similar way, both minor, relatively minor damage. You know, the person on the left side of the screen is thinking, oh my God, that was terrifying. I was so scared. And look at the level of stress that she or he is experiencing. It's overflowing. This might be something that she or he views as traumatic. And then the individual on the right side, um, their car, they're like, oh, okay, that was, that was bad. I hope everyone's okay. What an inconvenience for me. Now I have to take my car to the shop and you know, get a rental, but you know, whatever, I'll be fine. So, you know, we don't know the backgrounds of these two individuals, but it's to demonstrate that these perceptions of the same event can be uh, vastly different. Um, and actually I have a more realistic example uh, of a car accident. Uh, some months ago, my partner uh, was rear-ended on the highway. It wasn't bad at all and he wasn't stressed out. 
Um, but the person that rear-ended him was absolutely feeling overwhelmed and stressed out. And when you look at them, you know, when you look more at what was going on, the, the young man who rear-ended my partner, uh, he's 18, he lived in San Diego, he was in LA just for the weekend, he had his dad's truck. And so he had all of these other demands and expectations of, oh my God, I'm going to be in trouble. Um, oh my God, this is an old truck and it's going to be really difficult to fix and repair. And um, I'm, you know, two hours away from home. And, and you know, my partner's thinking, oh, you know, it's, this sucks. I really hate this. However, I'm okay. My car will get fixed. Um, I'm only 10 minutes from home. It's not a big deal. So um, again, just varying differences there. So I want to move into uh, the next slide and we're going to watch a video, but I'm going to first talk about uh, what this is and then we'll then we'll watch the video to hopefully it'll uh, uh, make more sense at that point. Um, and feel free to bring into uh, bring some discussion into this because this is a, a really uh, important piece of, of trauma and how we view stress and events in our life. And I probably should have said this um, before, but I, I just I, I think it's always important when talking about race and bias of just acknowledging privilege and me as a as a white man that you know I've experienced many privileges in my life and I continue to experience those. And um, and so I'm not always the best person to talk about stuff like this. So I do want to acknowledge that. And so any dialogue could be would be really really helpful. And I, I see some comments that I'll I'll get to uh, in, in a few moments. But uh, historical trauma is uh, there are events that happened that we weren't necessarily directly a part of in our history. Um, however, they still impact how we view the world today. So I the one that there's a few that really come in. Um, uh, come to mind. I think the biggest one for me, though, is, is slavery in the United States and, and slavery, really, excuse me, slavery all over the world, but certainly slavery in the United States. So, you know, as we, we as we all know, um, the uh, white men um, uh, captured, tortured, murdered, sold, uh, used um, African-American uh, families, men, women, and children as labor and horrible things had had happened. And it really wasn't all that long ago. Uh, most likely those of you who are on the call today probably did not directly, like you were not slaves in your, in your life in that sense. However, would it be fair to say that that has no impact on you? Like, oh my gosh, of course not. Of course that would not be fair to say. So when I see a, so for example, um, I hope I'm able to make this connection clear enough. Um, when I see a white person in a position of authority, um, I don't feel anxious. I don't feel nervous. Um, and yeah, I'm like, oh, cool, no big deal. I'll do what you need me to do and move on and not think anything else of it. But now I can't imagine what that would be like as an African-American person. And we were talking about an African-American man. Um, earlier on and, and how those perceptions uh, can uh, have an impact on uh, and how we respond to stress. But yeah, so let's say me, maybe I am that white authority figure and me approaching an African-American man. It makes 100% sense for why that individual may be guarded, why he may view me as a threat. 
Even though he didn't experience slavery directly, it's not like he doesn't know that these things happen, that these atrocities happen in our history. And that person would have every right to feel cautious and guarded and mistrustful of me. And it makes sense that it might take me more time and energy to develop a relationship with this individual because um, trust would have to be developed a little bit more. And, you know, and, and we could see how slavery and the injustices, how they have been continuously perpetuated in our society. And, um, and so I'll, I, I'll leave that conversation there. I, I can't do it justice, and I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, we could also view it, though, from a Native American perspective of how they were forced from their land and again killed and um, horrible things took place. We could look at that um, from the perspective of those who are Jewish and what occurred during World War II and the Holocaust. All of those experiences are not forgotten and they shouldn't be forgotten. They, they, they must not be forgotten, um, but it's gonna guide how individuals who fit within those particular um, categories and even outside those categories like these instances are going to have an impact on how we view the world. Um, so with that, why don't we, I wanna, uh, why don't we go to the movie? What matters in life is not what happens to you, but what you remember and how you remember it. My dad said when they were growing up, they said, we used to play cowboys and Indians. And he started telling me this story. And we used to fight over, uh, nobody wanted to be the Indian. And he said, I didn't think about that. We'd all play, and I'd always suck it up, and I'd be the Indian. But how ironic is it for a bunch of Indian children to be playing cowboys and Indians, and nobody wants to be the Indian? The introduction of a destruction of culture and loss of what is good. And I asked my dad, well, why didn't anybody want to be the Indian? And I thought I knew the answer. He said, because everybody knows the Indian dies. And that already in his generation, as strong as he was, he received a message as a young child. I received the same message, that it was not good to be Indian. Slavery, colonization, forced relocation, and other historically traumatic events in generations past have lingering and profound consequences today. But what is historical trauma? Historical trauma has to do with collective, cumulative emotional wounding over and across generations that results from massive cataclysmic events. These are events that don't just target an individual, but they target a whole collective community. Things like forced relocation from traditional homelands, like the Trail of Tears, like my ancestors went through. But the process that our communities talk a lot about is that the trauma is held personally, and it can be transmitted over generations. So even family members who have not had a direct experience of the trauma itself can feel the effects of that event generations later. Does historical trauma only affect certain groups of people? What really helps me to help people understand the notion of historical trauma is that it's actually a phenomenon that lots of communities, indigenous communities, or people all over the world have sort of kind of um, struggled with. It's not something that's specifically is only owned by tribal people or indigenous people. It gets um, um, articulated all over the world. Historical trauma is widespread, affecting many communities across the globe. Observation has, uh, from the empirical side, started with um, work on the Holocaust survivors. And there's a lot of work on intergenerational transmission of trauma. And, um, and it's moved into also looking at Japanese internment survivors, 
Armenian survivors, descendants of the Holo their, their Holocaust, and so forth. So there's been some more, some more empirical work in this area. And you can imagine trying to track trauma over generations and trying to tease out what is the impact over generations on this child combined with whatever traumatic events they've gone through in their, their childhood and their, in their lifetime. Historical trauma is passed on across generations. Well, I say to you, acknowledgement is due my grandfather, Pop. He never told us the stories of why he did certain things. He never shared with us why he never cried, for example. He never shared with us why he walked out the door when my grandmother cried. Why he turned his back when she cried. Of course we thought he turned his back because he didn't care, of course. But he turned his back as I look back now because the pain has no words. I still have the images, the images of him dealing with the limitations that he was up against. I can only imagine the pain. But what I do know is that it didn't go away. It came inside into those of us who followed him. No one ever talks about the moment you found out that you were white or the moment you found out that you were black. That's a profound revelation. The minute you find that out, something happens. You have to renegotiate everything, and that's a profound psychological moment. I saw a water fountain that said white and colored. My family was seven kids by then. We drank a lot of Kool-Aid. So colored water, that was in my cognitive schema. So I go toward this colored water fountain. And while I'm there, just before I get there, there's a little white girl who saw that same colored water fountain and she was just about to turn the sprocket when her mother came and grabbed her by the arm. And she said, you cannot drink from that colored water fountain. And she said, but I want the colored water. I want the colored water. Oh, I want the colored water. So I knew it must be good. So I run to the colored water fountain, looking for my mom, making sure she won't stop me from drinking. And I turned the water fountain, and it was clear, just like at home. That day, that trauma, I remember to this moment. For African American communities, historical identity and understanding is inextricably tied to the reality of enslavement. It ties us to enslavement with what an awful terror, 400 years of trauma we experience. And for us, we talk about it as being utter cultural erasure. Historical trauma is uh, a little bit better. Um, obviously, the uh, the people in the video are able to talk about it much much better than I have, uh, or I'm able to. Um, but Tony, you uh, so I want to revisit your question here, and it says so. How much control do we have in our young children's brain development? And also, is it realistic to reach for the goal of raising a child that experiences less stress, racist thinking, more empathetic, etc.? And um, it's a really big question, and uh, if anyone, I, I would love to hear from some of the individuals who are also on the line. 
Um, but we, I, I do feel that we, we have some control. However, we know that our society, we know that institutions and media and peers and um, everything is, is coming from a variety of different lenses. We can't control everything um, that, that a child um, takes into his or her reality. So I think the most important piece is first acknowledging that, that it exists, acknowledging our own biases and role modeling for our for children, um, that it's okay to talk about our biases and acknowledge them. And what's even more important is how we respond to them. And um, uh, and again, I guess being a role model there is is really important, but also acknowledging and, and teaching children about how difficult and how hurtful society can be. So uh, I'm not doing the best job of answering this. So I would love to hear um, what other people are able to uh, uh, to contribute there. Um, yeah, I would love to as well. I think in our group at UCLA, we constantly are chatting about the fact that none of us specialize in child and family work. Uh, we all work with adults. So this is definitely out of our purview. I will say, and this is, less helpful on the, right, how about I say this, more helpful on maybe the understanding the sort of neuroscience behind children's developing minds. Uh, Daniel Siegel wrote a book, uh, wrote a few books, I believe, on this, sort of trying to understand how in parenting you can work with awareness of the neurobiology of developing minds. Um, this stuff might be of interest, but I don't think it has any sort of socially just content in it whatsoever. Um, and then I guess, yeah, similar to what David is saying, I guess there's that hope that through modeling and through um, modeling empathetic behaviors, talking about things uh, with children, with anyone and with adults as well, um, uh, sharing perspectives and addressing bias, ad calling out oppression, things like that, that hopefully doing that in a way that is open and not shaming, uh, that is the best chance of helping to raise children that will become adults that will not perpetuate um, oppression and trauma. Yeah, I, I thanks, Elizabeth. And, and a point you had made that I think is very valuable, and it was all very valuable, but, but the one that I just want to emphasize is being able to correct and being an advocate um, when, when we see injustice is happening as opposed to being that bystander who doesn't do anything about it. I certainly can think many times in my in my recent and not so recent history where I was the bystander who didn't do anything about it. And so that's a missed opportunity for me to have changed um, someone's perceptions, even if it's just a little bit. Uh, you know, the example, I've, I've shared this before, the example uh, was a bias against homeless people and my partner's nephew was, was, was with us. We were showing uh, him and his dad around LA and, you know, he had made a comment. He's, I think he's eight or nine years old and um, uh, he made a comment about how, uh, you know, homeless people often have cell phones and if they're homeless, why do they have cell phones? And <laughs> I, uh, I, I wasn't, I, I felt my stress level go up 
and I wasn't able, I didn't interfere. And like that would have been a really good um, opportunity for me to provide some education on how, uh, uh, how we view our homeless population and people who are homeless have every right and deserve to have a cell phone and more than that, <laughs> way more than, than just the cell phone. Um, and, but yeah, I knew I would have probably said some bad words and I wouldn't have done a very good job of role modeling. So I decided to be the, uh, uh, the bystander who does nothing. So um, that was a really good example of what you should not do. Um, and uh, yeah. Tony, thanks. Yeah, you said that that was healing as well as opening up wounds. I, I'm assuming you're talking about the video. So <laughs> I hope I hope you'll get some of those stitches that you need as we continue to go through our, our topic today. So um, thanks for that participation. I, I appreciate it. And so with that, it's it's 2.30 and I think it's time to take a 10 minute break. So let's go to 2.40. We're going to talk about trauma just as a topic. And of course, today has been a bit of a kind of a background on what is stress, what is trauma. Um, and then Friday, we're going to get into some aspects of trauma treatment um, and then what this is all about, trauma-informed care. So what, and really through all of this content even today, um, we hope that you're able to think about what you already know about trauma-informed care and like how learning some of this stuff can impact your capacity to better understand the people that you work with and understand where some of their reactions um, might originate from, some of what they experience, um, and have greater empathy and compassion uh, just from learning what's going on in their brain, just that alone. Okay, so let's talk about traumatic events, um, or just this is really the definition of trauma, right? So SAMHSA defines uh, individual trauma as resulting from an event a series of events or a set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening, and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. So what, as David was talking about earlier, we've got this sort of continuum, right? There's stress, um, and then stress at a certain level for each individual person. Of course, this is different based off of those um, this factor is denoted in variance of perception of events. What an event that is meeting the sort of this criteria as described by SAMHSA, um, that can become something that is traumatic for someone. Um, also, traumatic events are characterized by fight or flight being activated when the event is experienced as perceived to being threatening to self or others. And then, of course, as David spoke about earlier, um, when fighting or fleeing isn't possible, freezing often takes place. You can go to the next slide. Okay, so types of trauma. Um, with SAMHSA's definition, we've got this uh, sort of breakdown to three categories. Uh, they talk about events, series of events, or a set of circumstances. And you'll see other, other sort of conceptualizations of the types of trauma as also broken out into three, acute, chronic, and complex. The literature is kind of all over the place and how it likes to describe and categorize trauma. Um, and I think that that just is a result of and accurate to the fact that trauma is a really uh, vast sort of um, uh, header title for this huge variety of experiences that it are they differ in um, and how they're characterized, they're, whether they're a one-time thing, a multiple-time thing, whether they are more diffuse, like a set of circumstances. Um, so this little chart here just notes some examples of each. So let's, 
let's look at an event or a cue. We've got car accident, uh, single sexual assault, or a disaster. So a car accident's pretty clear cut, right? Like that's that's one event. That's a single thing. A single sexual assault. Um, that's one thing. Now disaster, I put in every single category here under event or acute or series or of events or chronic or set of circumstances because really that's kind of how it is, right? A disaster can happen and maybe one person experiences just the single event of their house being hit by a tornado. Now maybe someone experiences a series of events. I always think of Katrina, especially because David has had lived through that and mentions it a good bit in our trainings. Um, people experience probably multiple traumas in that, or multiple events that were traumatic in that time, depending on what resources they had and where they were located in New Orleans. And then maybe it's a set of circumstances, right? Uh, reduced access to resources um, without maybe any specific uh, sort of discrete events. Um, so again, this is, this is sort of broad and what uh, like domestic violence relationship, that's depending on how someone experiences that, it could be really falling into any of these three categories also. Um, so I know this is not not to sort of, um, not to say that, you know, you need to, with the people you work with, try and make sure their trauma experience fits into one of these boxes, but it's just to show the variety and that we, you know, one person might categorize or conceptualize the trauma in one way and one person might see it in a completely different way. Complex trauma is a tiny bit different, so it doesn't really fit within that sort of threefold chart uh, from before. So complex trauma, we've got a couple of definitions of it. So Bethel van der Kolk uh, is, I guess, a trauma expert. He wrote uh, The Body Keeps the Score, I believe, if I'm getting that title right. David, David Nod. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he, he likes to think of, he and his colleagues like to think of uh, complex trauma as when an individual has been exposed uh, uh, has experienced repeated instances of the same type of trauma over a period of time or experienced multiple types of trauma. So he's thinking in numbers. Um, same thing multiple times or multiple types of trauma. Judith Herman, and that's uh, the author that David mentioned earlier who wrote the seminal book Trauma and Recovery, defines that as typically interpersonal involving situations where traumatized people cannot escape due to physical, social, or psychological constraint. So her twist on complex trauma is a bit more about what are the dynamics of the situation? What's going on with power and disempowerment? And I think that's, that's also the other sort of, that can often be that, is, is it stress or is it trauma, has a lot to do with how disempowered someone is. We see that in a, a smaller version um, in comparing stress and trauma and then turning up the knob a bit more when someone is truly constrained physically, psychologically, or socially, it might become complex trauma. Um, and so complex trauma, it's important to think about uh, as it really can impact uh, individual self-regulation abilities. So this goes beyond PTSD symptoms. Some of the things that might come up uh, have to do with um, individuals' ability to self-regulate, um, maybe like around emotional regulation, difficulties in someone's capacity for relationships, sort of like this relational stuff, problems with attention or consciousness relating to dissociative experiences, maybe having a different belief system. Um, or somatic complaints or somatic disorganization. So some of that has some overlap in PTSD uh, symptoms, but some of those are kind of going a bit far beyond. And so complex trauma needs to be treated a bit differently is what this is going to say. And David, thank you for throwing that book title up. And we had Judith Hermans from earlier. The traumatic set of circumstances. Um, 
this slide isn't necessarily, you know, this isn't SAMHSA saying these are examples of traumatic sets of circumstances. These are ones that we sort of thought about and uh, really wanted to highlight, pulling from a, a lot of uh, various pieces of literature as things to expand uh, the perspective on what 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 a traumatic set of circumstances could be. What is could be just sort of this overlying context that can contribute to someone's traumatic experiences. So we've talked about historical or multi-generational trauma um, with David just before the break. And David also mentioned uh, the, well, the history around uh, PTSD, PTSD stemming from war conflicts in the 20th century. And just to highlight that there's also, you know, he mentioned sort of that bystander um, experience of being around uh, trauma and not, or being around violence and not being able to intervene. I think the Vietnam War, I agree, is, is an incredibly poignant example of um, how sort of obedience uh, to um, the military ended up putting a lot of people in a position where they were in harm's way or they were feeling complicit in harming others, even if it went against their belief system, which produced really uh, really difficult psychological effects. But just thinking about a set of circumstances where maybe someone goes into a war zone, but they are not involved at all in direct combat. They are just around, um, that constant threat exists. So they are going to be hypervigilant at all times, knowing that their life or others could be at risk. They're dealing with some really challenging moral dilemmas as well. Institutional betrayal. So I'm gonna read what institutional betrayal is. Uh, this is a bit of a new concept to me that I was delighted to hear someone had put into words. So uh, what can happen with uh, institutional betrayal? Let's, for example, take, um, let's imagine that someone has experienced a sexual assault and they're in the military. So institutional betrayal has to do with when the institution that should be there is sort of like a support or a protector or at least an enforcer of rules um, doesn't isn't able to because it's structurally or um, maybe related to their their values um, or the culture, it, it does not stand up to protect and increase the safety for someone impacted by trauma while serving within that institution. Um, and institutional betrayal can occur when someone has to continue to work within that environment. So you'll see that, um, well, yeah, I think military sexual trauma is a great example of that. It's something that for years was really not uh, attention was not paid to it. It was not validated. Uh, people who had experienced it were expected to work alongside their colleagues in the military, despite the, the sort of um, cultural structures and institutional structures that made it so they were not supported in their experience. Okay, and talking about communities experiencing oppression. So this overlaps a lot with historical and multi-generational trauma, right? That's sort of maybe that's sort of the uh, backslash to this other sort of ongoing present time um, traumatic oppression that occurs to non-dominant communities. So think about this. Think about how oppressed communities experience marginalization and how that can increase their risk for experiencing trauma um, and how much it reduces safety and access to resources. So I think about attempts to create power and control imbalances by uh, dominant identities. So groups that uh, maybe political groups or um, that that want to ensure that institutional racism continues, um, how, how that impacts policy and uh, cultural design. Those are all things that are going to, in effect, reduce the safety and further marginalize um, 
individuals who are of non-dominant identities. So that's sort of this experience of knowing there's a constant threat to your safety simply by your gender or the color of your skin. Um, and that can extend beyond stressful to become traumatic. And structural violence uh, is relatedly also a form of violence wherein some social structure or a social institution may harm people by preventing them from meeting their basic needs. Um, we see that with, in, especially in working with people who are homeless, um, uh, people who might be experiencing severe mental illness. I think there's uh, some relevance there as well around structural violence. Okay, so settings that systematically disempower individuals, and in some ways, all of these really do thus far, and that is why they can become traumatic. Um, but incarceration is a really great example of a, a setting that systematically disempowers individuals and also is uh, absolutely full of instances where further traumatic events will occur. Um, who is it, Lisa Najavitz? I don't know if I ever say her name right. She's the person who's, I believe, the author of or creator of Seeking Safety, which most of you are probably familiar with. Um, she has a nice article on creating trauma-informed correctional care that I would recommend reading. Um, I'll just read a little bit from this article. The rates of post-traumatic stress disorder and exposure to violence among incarcerated males and females in the U.S. are exponentially higher, not surprised, than rates among the general population. Yet abrupt detoxification from substances, the pervasive authoritarian presence, and sensory and environmental trauma triggers can pose a threat to individual and institutional stability during incarceration. Um, they're challenging settings to implement trauma-informed care. She and the co-author Miller are attempting to come up with ways to do that. But if you really think about incarceration, yeah, thanks, David. Um, incarceration settings, they're, uh, they're definitely not meant to treat uh, survivors or victims. They are meant to uh, contain perpetrators. Um, people have constraints put upon them. They're in overcrowded uh, units. Um, there are lights on all night, there are loud speakers and loud sounds, um, there's no privacy, so security is really focused on maintaining order and assuming that everyone is violent. Um, and we're going to watch a video in a little bit about someone who had a lot of exposure to the criminal justice system and was incarcerated many, many times. Um, and really, I think we all know the correctional system is problematic in enhancing people's traumatic experiences and causing greater psychological issues than were there before and is not meant to rehabilitate. Uh, but this is something to keep in mind when working with people who are um, forensically involved, what we can do to possibly um, be aware of how impactful that experience is and to keep a trauma-informed lens on at all times and work when working with them. Forced treatment while institutionalized. So uh, thinking about this in the example of uh, psychiatric institutionalization, um, and maybe we think about this from further decades back, uh, where people were put in asylums and really just kept there indefinitely without effective treatment or uh, ethical care whatsoever. Um, it's something that you still hear about instances where people are treated um, without their capacity to choose, uh, which could be traumatic because, again, there's that disempowerment uh, that occurs in individuals and not having control over what happens to them. And then we hear also about more extreme cases of um, actual abuse or assault that can occur in institutional settings, of course. But this is more meant to uh, speak to, the, again, that continuum of disempowerment and how extreme it can be, or maybe it is just the threat of it ongoing, the threat of forced treatment might be something that's traumatic for an individual. All right, any questions? 
any thoughts on this? It's, it's a tricky thing to define such, again, a varied, uh, temporally varied, experientially, um, and a really subjective topic such as tra trauma and traumatic events and traumatic sets of circumstances. I'm oh, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say there is one, uh, oh. one comment from before just about how a more current example of institutional betrayal can certainly be the police institution. Perfect. Uh, yeah, really, I hate saying really great example, but it's not great, but. <laughs> right, right. So what is the, the, the police institution is a great example of, oh my goodness. I mean, I'm just looking at this slide and how many, um, isn't it all its impact on uh, certain groups in society right now? Is it is it all of those bullet points except for forced treatment? I mean, to some degree, it has relation to or overlap with. Um, it's definitely uh, institutional betrayal fits in there. Communities experiencing oppression. It is um, certainly a a tool and institution that is being wielded um, unfairly and in an unjust way to certain groups. Uh, <laughs> I think about the um, the current pseudo, maybe not war zones, not the right term, but the people protesting in Minneapolis right now and the treatment of the police against citizens uh, trying to protest against for what they believe in feels a little bit like that. And it's definitely echoing the historical trauma that the groups that are targeted by um, police brutality uh, experience. Thank you for that comment. I'm sorry I read over that. All right, traumatic memories. So just like David, I'm a social worker. I am not a neurologist, a neuropsychologist, a neurobiologist. I am not a psychiatrist. Um, so you have to forgive me if some of this is not my forte in talking about. Um, but let's, let me link this back to what David was talking about earlier. He was describing what happens in the brain when there's threat, what happens in the brain and body when there's a threat. And he talked about the stress hormones that are released and the parts of the brain that are releasing those and kind of how that all sort of fits together. So let's say that the threat has occurred, the traumatic response has occurred. Um, let's talk about how those memories are created and why what's really problematic about trauma and what ends up turning into PTSD for some people is related to how, really how that's processed and how those memories are encoded. So just quick points here. This diagram is showing that there's this event, this traumatic event, and we've got so many, so many contextual factors. We have uh, a bunch of sensory things like taste, sensation, sight, smell. Uh, we've got cognitive experiences like thoughts, um, we've got state of mind. We have uh, environmental contextual things like time of day, time of year, people involved. Um, all of these are things that can become involved in the formation of a memory of a traumatic event. All right, so let's talk about the two different types of memory. And I, again, do not fault me if I stumble over some of these words. So we've got implicit and explicit memory. Um, the first one has to do with the amygdala. Now, this is what David was talking about earlier as part of our limbic system. It's that sort of emotional piece. Um, it's going to have, it's going to be responsible for releasing stress hormones and inducing a reaction to, uh, to survive. Um, so the amygdala, it's part of the limbic system and it, it, it tends to catalog the past sensory experiences as implicit memories. 
So these are the memories that are unconscious but can affect thoughts and behaviors. These memories are associated with usually intense arousal, making them readily primed in order to quickly associate them with future situations that are stressful or threatening. So that learning, implicit memories are there to help us in the future in case that threat happens again. So we don't have to think because we won't be able to think. In fact, we're going to be able to think less because, as David mentioned, the stress hormones that are released are actually kind of like making it so the hippocampus doesn't do its job. It's actually taking a breather. So this is a critical survival feature of implicit memory. Explicit memories. All right, so this is the stuff that the hippocampus is responsible for managing. Um, these are the cognitive long-term memories that we can remember in our thinking brain, our prefrontal cortex. Um, they, again, rely on hippocampal process of consolidation. So that's the hippocampus acting as like the brain's librarian or sort of the sense maker of sorts. Uh, this part of the brain is responsible for integrating that raw sensory data into a coherent picture, um, putting like a time stamp on it, and then logging it away, archiving it into a longer term episodic memory where it can be retrieved later. Um, that's sort of like, that's everything that we know, right? Everything that we can refer back to and be like, I'm thinking about reading this situation at the grocery store where I see a really long line of people outside and make a decision about whether I want to stand in that line. I'm pulling from lots and lots of learning over the course of my life, and all of that is explicit memory. So. What also is happening when we are encoding uh, traumatic memories, this is less active, um, and uh, it really involves another part of the brain called the Broca's area, which is the language area of the brain, um, and that's what helps us put our experiences into words. Also not really so much involved at times when traumatic memories are being encoded. So um, what, does that, what does that turn out to uh, cause? We end up with people who are not as well able to verbalize the experience that they've had. It's just harder to put it into words because it's not something that was involved with the encoding of the memory and why it's something that a lot of treatment for trauma ends up having to focus around. It's creating a, a verbal narrative that's, um, that's fitting. Um, situations in which the trauma is ongoing may negatively impact our ability to reflect or regulate our emotions. Yes. So if we've got the amygdala in overdrive, that's really going to uh, cause a lot of dysregulation. And we, again, aren't going to, we're going to have memories coming back up that are not, they're the implicit memories, not the ones that have a, a really helpful narrative and meaning already made from them. With the amygdala's sort of like adrenaline blasting function, that ends up making it so memories are pretty fragmented in part because, again, they don't have that narrative, but they we don't catch everything. It's not like a, a perfect transmission that gets filed away. Um, so in this really lovely uh, diagram, I don't know what to call this. I like to call everything David makes art because these are his uh, images here. Um, we've got the non-traumatic memories on one side and traumatic memories on this other sort of uh, file explorer window here. And if you can see them, and I hope you can, we've got uh, these categories of environmental conditions, Feelings, sight, smell, sounds, tactile feelings, taste, thoughts. And then over here, we have this folders all in kind of disarray, and we have the files that go in those folders really not well organized. Um, and that's, this is sort of the, I, we don't want to call it the fault of the amygdala or the fault of the hippocampus, but this is what happens. Um, we, we just don't, memories get disorganized and get fragmented, and some things get really highlighted and, and valued as important for the future, and some things 
end up not being so, and that's why you see instances of people not having clear memories of trauma at times. All right, so just to explain this a bit more, um, so when the amygdala encodes sort of these fear memory traces or fragments while the hippocampus is learning about the context of the fear, trying to learn, um, uh, but when space of threatening experiences, this emotionally arousing information increases stress hormones and amygdala activity, and that activity correlates with more deeply remembered and vividly recalled isolated sensory fragments like visual images, smells, sounds, or felt experience. Um, and with that, the hippocampus isn't as involved, and so we aren't really able to remember sort of the timing or the, the sequence of events. But what people end up having a lot of are these memories that are really sensory and they're very, uh, very visceral, uh, very strong. Um, when, uh, when sort of, so we already talked about how some things are just forgotten. So up in the, uh, the folders up here, we've got fear and it's, I can't quite read them. We've got fear and winter and a hubcap roll away. So these little bits and pieces, and some of them are sort of mismatched too, right? Because some of those sensory pieces, maybe we've heard the hubcap rolling away and maybe that gets paired in this really immediate uh, learning that occurs with uh, absolute threat. And so in the future, when we hear a hubcap rolling away, if that ever happens again in our life or something maybe a little less random like that, um, that is why uh, certain there are instances of people being cued into a state where they are right back to um, they're experiencing a flashback or, or um, a nightmare perhaps, or they're just right back to as vigilant as they would have been in the situation of the immediate threat due to a cue that is going to pull up that reaction without their, their prefrontal cortex being involved whatsoever. So that sort of cognitive intervention uh, isn't really gonna happen. The implicit memories that arise are really just there to protect us in the future and that is their function. Um, and that is what we see in PTSD symptomatology. So this image here, and we're gonna revisit it on Friday, and it will make a little more sense, I think, when we re revisit it Friday, but just just for the moment, let's look at that. And I don't know what people see. Maybe you can say, throw in the chat what you see there. I see some squares. I see something that looks like it could be a chessboard. Um, I see a green cylinder or can. Um, I see a shadow. I, I assume there's light shining from the right side. Uh, of course, this is an abstract image that means nothing, but that is, that is what I think that is. Now, that is not something I could, that's not something that I could put together. I couldn't think chessboard. I wouldn't have that immediate association unless I had explicit memory, unless I had that sort of, I understand there's historical context, you know, there's historical data, knowledge, contextual information, um, the memories that I have of learning what that was, uh, that is, that's, that's explicit memory helping me out there. And so someone, let's say that they never, had seen that before, or they they were perhaps blind and then uh, gained the ability of sight, they're not going to be able to think that that's anything in particular. It's just a it's just an image. Um, so those those sort of descriptors wouldn't come to mind in the same way. All right. So from that prior learning about certain objects, we can make those automatic inferences about what's going on. Um, and with when you take the example of someone who, who's experiencing, let's say, and this is a really, this is a stretch. Um, let's say someone has experienced the trauma and a chessboard was around. Okay, so maybe they are at a high stakes 
chess tournament and someone doesn't respond well to the pressure and uh, there's an assault, something like that. And someone experiences that maybe they are the, the victim survivor of the assault or they see it secondhand, but it's something that's really traumatic to them. Let's say that that chessboard is then associated with traumatic stress. So we, there's been this pairing of a harmful and a neutral stimuli. Chess, chessboards prior, not a big deal. No one cares about chessboards. Probably the most, or maybe some people do care about it in this training. So sorry, um, but it's not uh, it's not a threatening stimuli. So what they may experience is the amygdala triggering the hypothalamus to release the stress hormones, warning them of danger in the future when they see this visual cue. So the explicit memory that this is a chessboard still exists. So I, let's say it was me, I still know that this chessboard is a chessboard. I can have that explicit memory and at the same time when I see this, be like, danger. Because now I have an implicit memory that is connected or maybe it's the color green, maybe it's a can, maybe it's something else. And sometimes objects or things like that make a little less sense than maybe it's a smell or maybe it's a taste or maybe it's a sound. Um, these are things that will trigger that implicit memory and get me into that, that space where I am going to make a decision to protect myself one way or another, fight, flight, or freeze. And what we know about uh, the brain is that, so it changes. Like this is like, these are neural pathways that start firing together when memories are created. And one of the things that can be most sort of comforting to people who are trying to recover from PTSD or trauma is the brain can change back. So every time a memory is retrieved, it can be modified. It can be strengthened. So if let's say someone, the chessboard comes up and it's always in a situation where they're unable to reduce their stress levels and they actually have increased stress levels every single time they see a chessboard, that can strengthen that traumatic memory. And some of those other details might fall away because they're not that important. Some of that explicit uh, memory of like it's a chessboard might really fall by the wayside and not be something that's accessible at that time due to the levels of stress they're experiencing. With that in mind, you've got some options. Um, and when you're working with people who might have might be recalling or retrieving uh, traumatic memories, it's important to keep in mind that safety in that situation and some ability to reduce someone's stress level might and that is really what trauma treatment kind of hinges on, but even just working with people when um, a memory comes up, creating safety is one of the most critical things possible to not strengthen that uh, traumatic memory. And we see this with re-traumatization, right? When people are at court hearings or police investigations or having to recall their, their traumatic memories in a, um, an unsafe environment, a non-supportive environment, and an even more stressful environment, that is not helpful. Um, and Sometimes uh, even clinical environments can do that as people have to retell their stories, which are often traumatic over and over again. Right, and I know this can be maybe a little bit TMI on sort of the different types of memories, um, but it's, I think it's helpful. And I love David's slide from before on traumatic versus non-traumatic memories, because it really paints the picture of what happens when tra trauma occurs. All of these memories and even the explicit ones, so the narrative piece, the, the learning that occurs, that cognitive learning, that can sometimes be non-ideal. And that's an, something else that's addressed in certain trauma treatments. But separately, you know, you really just imagining that all of these bits of memory, these sort of, especially the sensory bits, are just kind of scattered around and not being archived properly. They're, they're being mis maybe purposed. Pur mispurpose, one could say, is kind of like responses to trauma are adaptive and then they become maladaptive at a point when they're causing harm ongoing. That's what we see with PTSD.
Um, so important to keep in mind how, how things pair together, the neuroplasticity, which is both a way of understanding um, how PTSD occurs and also how treatment can be helpful. And then of course the trauma-informed lens towards um, what, how, how to be careful and create safety when uh, working with someone, even if you're not doing trauma treatment. All right, I want to look at comments here. Right, so how do you honor the trauma of all? veterans, the sexual assault victim, the racial trauma. We're going to talk a bit about provider well-being um, and what that means, you know, some concepts around vicarious trauma, burnout, uh, compassion fatigue. <laughs> um, I think those are concepts that will be relevant. What we aren't going to get into terribly much as uh, if you are in trauma treatment yourself and are working with someone who's experienced trauma, I think some of the general rules of thumb apply of we have to take care of ourselves. We have to have a self-reflective process. Um, we have to have support. Uh, we have to, we have to watch out for um, our own trauma histories and seeing, knowing that that might put us at risk for experiencing things like vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue. Um, so that's sort of the easier answer to your question, and I hope we can explore it more on Friday. And then honoring the trauma of all, I think that's, wow, I don't know, I, I don't know how to answer that briefly. Um, I, I suppose we just keep trying to put ourselves, learn as much as we can about the experiences of those who are not, who we do not share the same identities of. So I'm a white woman, I do not know the trauma of a black man. I can learn about it. I can learn what it's like to live as a black man in the US. Um, I can learn as much as possible and then I can spend time trying to be empathetic and compassionate and trying to deeply understand everything from a macro level to an interpersonal level, what that person's experience is. And it's a lot of work, but that is, that's our job, right? Uh, it's to really step into everyone's shoes with whom we work and support. And we won't always know everything about all of the, the intricacies and uh, really unique dynamics of all the different sort of potentially traumatized populations you mentioned there. Um, but that is, that's sort of the ongoing work that we can try to do. So we are going to switch to doing a bit of a scenario and discussion here. Um, I'm going to talk about a fictional person named Regina who was involved in a car accident. Um, and if there are any similarities with a real person, uh, that's just coincidence. And if you feel uncomfortable listening to a short story about a car accident, please excuse yourself from this exercise. In answer to your question, Tony, that's, that's a good example of how you can take care of yourself is know the things that if you're not comfortable talking about it or hearing about it, take a break. Um, and even though this is a fictional story, Regina is okay. We're making sure she's okay and makes a full recovery. All right, so I'm gonna read through this uh, scenario and then we're gonna do some discussion. So Regina left work a few minutes early to beat traffic. It was a cool day in LA and a light drizzle was falling. She had just made a cup of coffee and put it in her travel mug. She needed some energy to help her children with homework. Regina had a stressful day at work today, but was happy to be headed home. As she got into her car, she put on her favorite new artist, Lizzo. The song Good As Hell came on, and she felt some of the stress of the day start to fade away. She drove down Veteran Boulevard to Sunset, where she has to turn right. Visibility is sometimes difficult when turning right because of the hill and curve. The light was red, and Regina patiently waited. She doesn't like to turn right on red at this intersection, but the car behind her started to honk the horn, indicating that she should turn right. The horn startled her, and she made a quick glance to the left before turning but she didn't see any lights approaching. She quickly made the turn. The next thing she remembers is waking up pinned by the steering wheel. 
She smelled smoke in the air. She also smelled her coffee that had sprayed everywhere from her mug. The metallic taste of blood was in her mouth. She felt pain in her left leg, but was unable to move it. Regina didn't know exactly what happened, but she felt intense fear. Regina immediately pictured her two children and what would happen to them if she died. She started to scream mostly out of the terror, but also the pain. She was beginning to feel pain in other parts of her body, like, like her head. Tears streamed down her face as she attempted to figure out what was happening. In a few moments, she heard the sirens approaching. Regina started to look around and began, to put the, began putting the pieces together. Her car was wrecked, and there appeared to be two other cars involved in the accident. One of them was a gray pickup that had a severely smashed hood and front bumper. As the reality of the accident settled in, flashing lights filled her vision. She thought about how she was listening to Lizzo and wondered why the music stopped. The flashing lights faded to blackness. All right, so I think as we go through some discussion on this, we would be happy to have people ready. If you want to speak with your voice, um, you can write in the word comment and we will unmute you in order of you saying comment. And hopefully we can get a verbal discussion going. If you'd rather just type in comments, you're welcome to do that too. So questions are up on the PowerPoint. Um, looking back over the scenario, so what, what type or types of trauma do you observe in it? Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the next question. I feel like they get a little more meaty as we go. Um, so where do you notice instances in which traumatic memories might pair with sensory or experiential memories? So what might become, a what might become an implicit memory for her? Um, and we don't know exactly. We don't know what she's, you know, kind of how active her hippocampus was able to be in this instance. Um, so what really got kind of explained and archived versus what became an implicit memory that will trigger her to think that there's threat in the future. The song, right. So the song might be a trigger memory for her, uh, the area that she was in, so what she could see visually. Yep. Driving, having other cars or drivers behind her. The taste of coffee. Taste of coffee, yep. Thank you. Honking horn, loud noises, honk, honk, yes. Um, getting behind the wheel at all, touching the wheel, right, being in the in space of her car. Leaving work early. Right, so that's, that's so interesting. Yeah, just the, that sort of, wow, what a thing you wouldn't really think through, but then do and wonder why um, you were experiencing some stress. I think driving the same route, that's a really interesting one too, definitely. Like that route, I imagine, is just filled with, with triggers for, for Regina. Daisy had mentioned, I believe it was Daisy up here um, earlier on, just how yeah, not wanting to drive again due to mm -hmm. this experience. And yeah, for all of these different triggers that exist. Yeah. What about, so how might a mobility limiting injury from the accident impact her mental health trajectory? And I know that's not something we've really talked about yet. Um, we haven't really touched on pain and its relationship to trauma. Uh, if we had more time, we probably would. Um, but what about, like, think about mobility limiting. So how might that impact what if this? turns into PTSD, you know, if, it's, if this experience uh, results in full-blown PTSD, or maybe what, what other impacts might it have? Yeah. Depression, grief and loss, so grief and loss over her mobility, yeah, depression, um, not, perhaps not able to do the same things. 
constant reminder. And if somebody asks her, like, what, what happened to you? Just constantly repeating the story over and over. Right. Great point. So uh, potentially a opportunity for re-traumatization um, or maybe a reinforcement of, I'm imagining, numbing or dissociation if she has to tell the same story over and over again down the road. Um, pain, physical limitations, anger could hinder her looking into seeking mental health services or rehab that might be recommended for her. Yeah. Um, Veronica, you're saying you work in a hospital setting and physical and medical issues definitely impact mental health with respect to challenges with daily routine. So I remember reading that she has children. So maybe like that mobility, limiting mobility might affect like the way she has interacted with her children. Yeah. So that can be depressing. Yeah, another great point. Um, so what will it mean if she's not able to parent in the way and interact with her children in the way? Because clearly that was very important to her. Um, I also see a comment that was just to me about hypervigilance with regard to her children. So she had this really extremely stressful event um, in which the first thing that came to mind was, oh my God, my kids. Um, what maybe she will perhaps have that sort of, uh, maybe that will pan out into impacting how much she worries about them in the future. Okay. Um, and in some ways, I think uh, mobility limitation, um, that's another sort of echo of disempowerment, you know, um, the, the thing that occurred, occurred to her. Um, in this case, it was another driver's fault. Um, and she's now also living with experiencing something that she is out of her control. She has to wait for her body to recover and she's limited or disempowered in some ways. And so that can also be a factor that comes up for people um, who are recovering from physical injury at the same time. Yeah. And Nancy has a really great comment about her sense of self as a mother and now her independence is, you know, it's certainly uh, impacted depending on how severe her, her injuries are. But mm -hmm. that, like, you know, maybe her kids are having to do things to help mom out, uh, help take care of mom. And there's a little bit of a role reversal there. I can mm -hmm. imagine um, a situation to be in. Uh, her kids might be really afraid something will happen to her again. If she mm -hmm. injured someone else, the guilt would stay with her, right? Okay, so I think we've covered the questions for this. So other comments on Rutina, what other questions arise for you when you're thinking about imagining working with her? You know, I, I think um, while you wait for a response there, Elizabeth, um, I think it's interesting just how might this experience impact Regina's relationship with her family. And uh, I, I think everyone kind of touched on this a bit, but I imagine just, you know, thinking about her children and maybe Maybe there's this sense of overprotection, um, knowing that her children, uh, you know, she was injured and like this could happen to her kids. And um, I imagine that might impact that relationship she has with those that she loves very much. And of course, I think somebody put there, Eve uh, had stated kids might be really afraid that something will happen to her again. And I, you know, I, we didn't really talk much about this, but I wonder if those two children experience any sort of like secondary trauma um, from knowing what has happened to their mom. Yeah, absolutely. Really uh, interesting stuff to consider. Um, so the question was about what type, types of trauma uh, do you observe in the scenario? Right, so I see the, personally, um, I see the single event of a car accident. Um, I see the, whatever you want to call it, let's say she has to have um, many surgeries ongoing to reconstruct a limb 
Um, we don't know really what's going to happen there, but perhaps some of those end up being extremely painful and traumatic in their own way. Maybe you could say that the intense fear that she experiences of not being able to be there for her children, since we don't have greater knowledge of what else is going on, maybe there's maybe there's a partner of hers who puts them at risk, and she can't imagine um, not being there as their parent. Uh, we don't have all the, the pieces of information there, but there are potential other traumas that could be occurring at this time or sort of threats. Um, you might be hypervigilant when driving. Yeah, definitely. I know I would be. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for participating, everyone. <laughs> Glad. It's good to know you're still here. Um, all right. Yeah, really health expenses. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Car and health expenses, time off work, lots of stress, lots of stress resulting from this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that, Beatrice. And that, yeah, I'm sorry that happened to you. I. Yeah, I would not, I imagine I wouldn't take that same route either. It's really interesting because I, I created this story from the routes that I used to take home from work. And it's funny, I'm not traumatized by just creating the story, but it's funny though, that because after I created the story, every time I make that turn, because it is kind of a tough turn, like I think of this story that I, I've now like built some memories around this and I haven't even experienced it. So. <laughs> Right. That's a, that's a really good example of what providers experience at times, um, which we'll talk about Friday when you, you hear the stories of people you work with a lot, how that can sort of sensitize us to having our own stress responses or at least vigilance. Um, okay. Okay. Let's move on to our video. So this is a documentary called Healing Mean. Um, some of you may have heard of it. Um, her, the star of the film uh, is Tony Arcane, and you can look her up. She's now got a pretty hefty public speaking business. Um, she does a lot of talking, perhaps internationally, but at least nationally, um, around trauma-informed care. And it's based from her own lived experiences and systems. And uh, this, what we're going to show today, is just about a 20, 25-minute uh, sort of teaser of what is an hour-long video of Healing Mean. It's the same documentary title. It's available. If you just Google it, I think uh, the full version's on YouTube or Vimeo. Uh, it's about an hour long, so you could check that out and watch the full video. Again, um, if, if watching any of this is uh, difficult for you emotionally in any way, no problem. Take space. Uh, we'll discuss it a little bit at the end for those that want to stick around. Uh, and if we don't end up having time for that, we can uh, revisit at the beginning of Friday. I'm about to go back into the Maryland Correctional Institution for Women to do a presentation for the inmates here. Um, just four years ago, I was an inmate here. It's, it's good to be on this side. It's good to be on this side. I heard about Tonier through the different partners that we have in the community. Her name is out there. She's known by a lot of people for the positive work that she's doing. And, and you wonder how could someone be so happy and jovial and have gone through all of the trauma that she's gone through in her life. Hello. Okay, so this is the building. This is the very last housing unit that I was in. Just four years ago, this is my home. In 1989, I remember the first time 
went through the jail system steps, prostitution, 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 possession of CDS, possession of open container. I'm coming into work at the National Association of State Mental Health Program Directors. My mother had a way of when she hit you, she would hit you with a belt and she would hold the, the, the strap of the belt so the buckles would hit you and she would hit you in your face and your head with it. So we often got a lot of scars from the belt buckle. And this is my mother's birthday. <laughs> this was in 94. At this point I was homeless, sleeping beneath a bridge, eating out of trash can. I couldn't go in anybody's house, including my mother's. He brought me down here to get high with it. He said, you know, if you don't sleep in the bus stops no more. A lot of times I was beaten. These are uh, these, these two houses were crack houses. Crunch down here and take a hit of crack right here. <laughs> the very secure building. And this is my office. I have an office. I have scars. I have scars right there. Right here I have, you can't really tell, two black guys and a busted lip. Thank you for receiving us here in El Paso. Um, my name is Tony Arcane. I was molested. I was raped. I was raped, I was beaten, I was raped, and I was like, this is how it's supposed to be for me. I am nothing, I'm never going to amount to anything, and this is how it is. And I'll stay here, I'll die just like this. And I had become comfortable with that. Please join me in welcoming Ms. Kane here to the Good evening, ladies, and I thank you so much for coming out and um, spending a little time with me tonight. I'm so thrilled to be here, to be able to stand in front of you beautiful, wonderful women and, and just help you to understand that it's all about you. So I'm telling you, I'm standing before you with 83 arrests and 66 convictions. They say I was going to spend the rest of my life in jail or die in the streets. And I tell you today, not so. Not so. And, you know, I end up with the drug addiction of 19 years. And, but, but you know, I, I don't have to tell you about what it is that goes wrong with drug addiction, do I? I really don't. But what I want to tell you that... It wasn't using drugs that was the problem. It was what happened to me as a child. My mother would entertain a lot of different men. She would be partying and you would hear her singing and you know laughing. But when the music stopped, I knew I was gonna start hearing the footsteps come toward that bedroom door. And at age nine, I positioned myself in front of the bedroom door to protect my brothers and sisters, but in the event, it made me available to the men. I brushed my teeth because I thought maybe I could brush away the smell of the men when they did this act to my mouth. My mother's an alcoholic. She's always been an alcoholic, and sometimes she would leave the household two and three days at a time. Well, finally, at age 11, somebody thought that something was truly wrong in that household. Because we were always looking out the windows, but we weren't allowed to play. My mother wouldn't allow us outside because she did not want anyone to know what was going on in that, in that apartment. Well, somebody thought that was wrong, and they called the Department of Social Services. And when Social Service came into the household and seen the conditions we were living in, they immediately removed us from that household and put us into foster care. 
Well, we ended up going to court. And I remember the court day. I was excited because I was seeing my brothers and sisters. And she was, they, you know, we were on a pew. And in the front, my mother was there. She was crying. She was real upset. And sitting beside her, y'all, I don't know where they found him at was my father. He was sitting there. He, not to say I'm going to take my kids home with me, but to give reasons why he wasn't. So nine family members was allowed to choose each and every one of them. And I ended up with my cousin. And she was a nurturing and good person. This is my cousin. Um, she's actually my second cousin, but when I was growing up, I always thought she was my aunt because, because the older, the older generation was like aunt. But when I came into your household and you guys gave me so much love and you showed me how to take care of myself and, and it was a good time because I was getting up there and aging because I never knew how to wash myself or wipe myself. Barbara didn't teach me that. So you taught me all of that. So I remember you being in the bathroom with me. Showing me how to how to take care of my hygiene because I didn't know. And um, talking to me, I mean, patiently talking to me. I, I, I wasn't used to being like a normal kid because this living situation I came out of. My mother came to the household where I was living and she called me, Ning, because that's what my mother calls me. So I ran downstairs and I opened up the door and I ran and she hugged me and she said, I love you. I want you to come back and live with me. She told me she loved me. The words that I've been dying to hear from her. I was crying because I knew I was going to miss you, but I was crying as you were going to where you were going to stay and going back home to your mother. And I just kept praying on the inside that everything was going to be okay. Within a week, she severely beat me in the middle of the street for trying to go to school. By then, she had had three more kids. I realized she wanted a babysitter. She didn't want me back because she loved me. Well, I didn't know how to live without my mother because I knew I couldn't live with her. So I remember taking an overdose. I remember waking up in the emergency room. I remember when nobody asked me, what happened to you? I remember them telling me, you're going back home with your mother and being terrified. So she came up with this great idea that one of her drinking buddies who thought I was cute, he was 24, I was a child basically, wanted to marry me. What was that? An opportunity to make my mother proud of me once again. I jumped on it. I'm, I'm walking down the aisle. She signed the papers. I didn't even have to be there because I was a minor. So I moved into a marriage. I'm married and my mother's living with me. And my husband would come home and he would do like this. And if it was dust on his finger, he wanted to know what was I doing all day long that I could not dust his house. Well, there was many beatings because I didn't dust his house. Age 19, somebody came to me and said, try this, and it was crack cocaine. I ain't get no beatings from dust in the house no more, because after one hit of crack, I cleaned my house, I went upstairs, cleaned the neighbor's house, I was outside washing everybody's cars. I ain't get that beating no more. But you know what? Using crack cocaine introduced me to the criminal justice system. But I didn't know how not to come back. I didn't know how to stay clean. And something inside of me just, I didn't have the motivation to, to, to want to be sober. Because I, I went back to my reality. Homelessness, putting myself in harm's way, staying with people that was going to beat me and hurt me and stuff. I'm like, you know, so it was easy just drinking drugs. And um, unfortunately, it landed me right back here really quick.
I spent many, many years working in the state mental health system. I mean, I started volunteering when I was a kid, 14 years old, in the state hospitals. So I spent close to 15 years at the Maximum Security Hospital at Clifton T. Perkins, and then I went on in the state of Maryland to be director for special populations, where I had the responsibility for services to people who were incarcerated, people who were homeless, people who had substance use issues. I've kind of done everything from the clinical work to the administrative work to now looking at promoting what my passion is trauma-informed care and the understanding of trauma in the lives of those, um, lives of those that we serve. Up to 90% of individuals who are in the public mental health system have been victims of trauma. About 85% we know from Department of Justice of girls in the juvenile justice systems have been the victims of early physical or sexual abuse. About 97% of homeless women who have mental health issues have been the victims of trauma while they were on the streets. 87% have been the victims of early childhood abuse. Over 50% of women in substance use programs report histories of incest. I mean, it's just, it's just universal. And so this is the ACE study, matching in this very middle class population uh, the population is exactly half women, half men, by, by chance. 80% white, including Hispanic, 10% black, 10% Asian, 74% have been to college. In no way is this some dismissible group, you know, that, yeah, well, maybe those people across town, etc. This is basically you and me. And what we found was extraordinary. A, the prevalence of these 10 categories and B, the, the remarkable effect that they had 50 years later. 28% of the women have a history of childhood sexual abuse. I mean, who the hell would know that? In terms of injection drug use, a person exposed to any four of those categories was 1,350% more likely to become an injection drug user at some point later in life. If you go to ACE score six, exposure to any six, of those categories, you're wildly off the scale because now it's a 4,600% increase in the likelihood that an ACE score 6 individual will become an injection drug user as compared to an ACE score 0 individual. I mean, so, so you know, I mean, the, the epidemiologist of the CDC told me, look, these are numbers that we see once in a lifetime as an epidemiologist, once in a career. So the numbers are of extraordinary magnitude. Sleeping on the street, underneath the bridge, eating out of a trash can, not even having the desire to live anymore. Five years ago, I didn't think that anybody could help me. And this is the bridge. This is the bridge. I'll go down and see. Doing. Jay, we're about to come down here and do some filming, so you might not want to be doing what you're doing. Home for so long, for so many years. 
I just remember just hearing the cars, the cars going over top of me. That would brought memories back because I would lay here and I could hear the cars. And in a way, that gave me some peace because you know that people is there, up there. Um, it was like, you know how you hear crickets? Some people hear crickets at night and it gives them, soothes, it soothes them and, and puts them into a peaceful sleep. Oh, hear the cars. It just was all just mud and sand and they put these bricks here, I guess to stop people from sleeping underneath. And now they have nowhere to go. But just a little less than five years ago, I was sleeping underneath here. Taking a hit of crack. Prostituting. When it comes to the point where we feel safer, I need for a bridge, a filthy, dirty bridge where we're exposed to violence and rape and everything, when it's safer out here. It's the problem with that. There's a problem. I felt safer right here than anywhere else other than just in jail and that thing for 19 years. Program for me, right? I was keeping my baby. 
And the first thing that someone said to me when I got to this program, the first session I had, my therapist told me, everything that happened to you as a child happened to you, you didn't do to yourself. And I believed. And we started to work. See, because you good folks, you know, substance abuse, some, even some judges, even parole and probation, try to help me, try to give me some, some tools and how to live. But you know, the good information was only surface. It couldn't get where it needed to get for me to, to get it rooted so I can build a foundation and grow, grow from. So my belief system can change from I am nothing to I am somebody and I can be anything I want in this world. You have to get it out of me to get the good information down there where it needed to be. My therapist, her first task was to allow, help me to feel safe. Because without feeling safe, there was no healing for me. Everything that I needed, I was able to get from this program. I had someone to help me to understand, turn to it. You know, helping me to form a secure attachment with my child. I didn't know how to be a mother. You know, I know how to give birth to a baby. And then she says, it's time to work on your children. No. I said, no. How? Do you heal from something that's still going on? Okay, my mother didn't love me as a child. She didn't show me love. She, okay, 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 that happened. That was then. I was raped. I was hurt. I was beat. I was raped. I was hurt. I was beat. Okay, that's happening no more. But my children are still living. They're still walking this earth somewhere, and I know nothing about them. How do you heal from that? And she said, you do but not by yourself. So I had to talk about my daughter when she was only 10 days old and when they came and they, they took her away from me and they put me in jail. And what, the way that my son looked when they grabbed him and he was crying, Mommy, don't let them take me. I had to remember that. I had to remember my son being picked up for the weekend and never brought back. And yet it was worse. For Landra, you know, she lives in a home where she's being loved, where I own my own home. She's been given the opportunity to go to a private school where she'll get the best education. You know, she's being hugged all the time and, and told that she's loved and worthwhile. She will never know what it's like to be hungry or to wait for somebody to be able to get money to feed her. Treating my trauma totally broke that intergeneration curse. I'm told that she's conditioned by her environment. She adjusts to, to what she's learned. And if that's the case, then she will be able to give her children what she was given. You know, so the curse has been broken. And we begin to look at a different cycle in our generation path from here on out. And this is the fifth floor. This is the floor where I work. This is the Office of Technical Assistance. Um, one of the units of departments from the National Association of State Health Program Directors. And this is boss lady. <laughs> this, is my, this is my supervisor, Pat Shea. She's the deputy director for the Office of Technical Assistance. 
I first met Tony when I was doing volunteer work at a jail diversion program in Baltimore City. And I would go there every Monday and hold the babies. When I see her today giving a speech or even just attending to details in the office, and it's hard to even believe that this is the same person. It's really been um, an almost literal transformation. I wasn't available, so they delayed Mother's Day for me to come out and speak. So, um, so that's why I stuck Oklahoma in for the 26th of June. And it's long. Every place she goes, people are inspired. I mean, every place she goes, we get 25 emails, you know, afterwards. It brings all the agencies together. Substance abuse, mental health corrections, the legislature. So after that talk that she did the first day for transformations, the lieutenant governor called a session of the House and Senate of the legislature in Hawaii. She went and spoke to them. The head of the mental health agency has decided that he wants to take trauma-informed care not just to psychiatric hospitals but to the general hospitals and this all happened really as a result of Tony going there and people listening to her message I need to help people I need people to be able to to grow and move in my direction because a lot of people see me and automatically know that is that I did it and they can do it. When paramedics come to a house and somebody have a heart attack, they feel the pulse. And you know what? It could be faint. You could take a heart in here. It, you might not have a pulse, but they get to working on that person. Don't they? And they try to resuscitate that person. So why can't we do that for the people that the, the trauma victims and the people that suffering in substance abuse out there? Why can't we keep working to resuscitate their lives? Why can't we keep working at it, working at it, working? Why can't we work at it ourselves? 83 arrests and 66 convictions. Three times down here and multiple times in the county jail. They said I was going to spend the rest of my life in jail and die. I wasn't going to mount to anything. Sorry to cut that a little bit short. Just had a minute left there and wanted to make sure we had at least five minutes to chat. Um, okay. So any thoughts or comments? Yeah. So she's fantastic um i encourage you to check out the full link that has a again it's, it's definitely full of um uh stories of the trauma she's experienced so just keep that in mind um because as you can tell it's it's a uh, pretty intense history um but very worthwhile to check out the full length uh video and maybe look at her website see what she's up to i've seen her speak at a couple conferences i think she does the circuit pretty heavily um yeah, super inspiring. But she speaks more to um, yeah the impact of trauma-informed care in her care, of course, um, and w what a difference that made. Um, so we show this with as a bridge to Friday's content. We're going to talk a bit more about the impact of trauma and then trauma-informed care. We see a comment here uh, from Eve, my pharmacology professor from when I took uh, substance use disorder counseling classes, just came out with a book. Oh, okay, cool. Anthony Brown, the guy talking about the ACEs study is, uh, yeah, he says a thing, uh, it's pretty, uh, I don't, we don't know who he's talking to, so we don't know who, who he means by you and me, but um, people just like us, it seems pretty, fill in the isms, it's pretty classist, potentially racist, uh, ableist, 
I, we don't know, but pretty icky. Um, I don't know if others had thoughts or reactions to that, but just wanted to observe um, that he makes that comment that's not uh, not great. Um, he yeah. does, when he speaks in the full-length uh, film, at least show a commitment to trauma-informed care. Um, sort of uh, privilege, uh, overt expression of privilege aside. Yeah, we definitely cringe when we see that part of the movie. But I, I think it's also worth noting, too, I mean, the ACEs study is so, is so frequently talked about and referred to in trauma-informed care. And, and it's, it, that, that's good. It's a good, um, uh, it's a good study to understand, and it's opened a lot of doors. But I think it's really important to recognize that 80% of the people in, who participated in that study were white. And therefore really just perpetuating some of the uh, stigma and bias that, uh, that we experience in society. So while the data that came out of it is helpful and eye-opening, um, it's, it's, missing, uh, it's missing most of, the, most of our society. So um, mm-hmm. just really important to acknowledge that. Yeah, it's a good point to make. I see we have a question here. You may have already gone over this, but will your training include trauma-informed responses? Could um, speak to that if I, Tony might be typing, a, but uh, we, we do have a section that's specifically geared towards um, how to respond to people in ways that are trauma-informed and are um, not going to be be triggering um, or intentionally triggering to some of those people. So I see you said by the provider, and yeah, I, I think what we have in part two, which is more about um, how to work with those who have trauma histories, different treatment options, and um, the importance of language and safety and control. So I, I do think we are uh, we're going to address those things. Uh, Eve, do you have a comment on, uh, yeah, it's, it's an inspiring film and it's so frustrating knowing that COVID-19 is increasing the score for a lot of people, hunger, poverty, substance use, increased stress. Yeah, yeah right, um, right. It's, there's a different sort of layer of um, awareness that we have to have at this time for everyone in our lives, not just the people we're serving, right, um, of what they may be going to and the unique responses they might be having right now to this very, very novel and new stressor. Mm-hmm. What a really interesting question. Like, is there a cure to trauma and or is it a matter of learning to cope? And, and there's, there's, there's not a cure. There's, there's treatment. Um, and part of that treatment is integrating the experience that the individual had or experiences, integrating those into their present life. And um, almost, it, it, I say this, it, it doesn't, it's not, as, it's not as literal as it sounds, but almost like rewiring, or we call it cognitive restructuring, mm-hmm. of uh, how the individual views the world and how to make sense of the experience and how to move forward and not be, um, not be stuck in the past. Um, but yeah, so it's a matter of recovery. I think it's an excellent way to frame it, absolutely. 